Today's episode of Creepscast is sponsored by Audible. Visit audible.com slash creepscast or text creepscast to 500-500 for a free 30-day trial. Again, that's audible.com slash creepscast or text creepscast to 500-500 for a free 30-day trial. Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing well. We have another spooky episode in store for you this week. I hope you all can handle it. Let's give it a try as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I can tell someone's past and future by looking at them. I saw someone who had no history at all. Written by Weird Bryce Guy. Everyone is born with some sort of disability or handicap. For many, these are genetic. Poor eyesight, a predisposition towards some disease or psychological abnormality. A malformation of the body. We all have an idea or prediction of what a normal life might be like. And in every case, this concept of normalcy is virtually indistinguishable from perfection. Someone who can walk, talk, see, and breathe normally might have dyslexia or suffer from aphantasia or anhedonia or be entirely devoid of sexual attraction. Individually, our standards of normality can usually be recognized as a life in which something we lack is present or something that plagues us is absent. This is a fair assessment, but if we were to gain that thing we lack, or lose the thing with which we struggle, our idea of normal would expand accordingly, and we would eventually be aspiring towards a physical, intellectual, and emotional perfection, an impossibility for humanity. It's not my place to establish a universal definition of perfection. My personal belief is that human beings cannot achieve perfection because it's a functionally abstract concept and anything approaching it would require the fundamental reworking or even the complete erasure of what makes us human. I do know and will speak about my own disability. My own handicap that has complicated my life and forced me to adapt to personal circumstances that most people have never dealt with and perhaps will never deal with. My disability can be easily stated but explaining it is a laborious and reflectively painful process. To put it simply, I can see a person's spiritual history. I've chosen this term as a semantic compromise. I will expand upon this shortly. Ordinarily, when someone says that they can do something, you would consider whatever it is to be an ability, a skill, oftentimes even an advantage not something that detracts from their quality of life and causes them to suffer. Because of this perspective, a more appropriate description would be that I am susceptible to the reception of their spiritual history. To simply say that I can see them might suggest that I control the function, that I can choose when to access or tap into the site. This is not the case. They are merely shown to me intimated without my consent. I bear the burden just as you bear the burden of the sun in your eyes as you walk to some destination. Were this the only issue, I might have been able to live a happy life, 
I might have adjusted to it, even received medication to mitigate it, if it could be accurately diagnosed. But other issues arose, initially during my teenage years and were intensified and as I grew older until now, almost 26 years old. My life is episodically terrifying, and I often consider ending it just to escape the horrors which relentlessly harrow and haunt me. A more intimate description of my susceptibility, as it's been established and the manifestation of the terror that has resulted from it, will be provided in the recounting of a single event that happened two years ago. It is not the worst of the many terrifying incidents, but it is one that I reflect upon the most, because it was the event during which I realized that there is no humanly achievable relief from my affliction, and that each day, each moment of life, conscious or unconscious, is a futile, theatrical gesture of survival. Two years ago, while walking my dog, I happened to pass by a group of people. Like everyone else, they exuded a certain element, not necessarily an aura or any kind of gaseous or a spectral emission, but an ultra-physical emanation. This, unfortunately, is the best way I can describe my perception of their spiritual history. I call it spiritual because saying psychic isn't contextually accurate. I'm not seeing or receiving their thoughts or even impressions of their emotions. I call it history, and not potentialities or permutations, because the events, the chronologies I perceive are more akin to eventualities, faded inevitabilities. They either have occurred, will occur, or, and stay with me here, if they haven't occurred and cannot be seen to, they transpire not as chartable, recordable moments, but resonances of possibility. As I walked by this group, I nodded politely and steered my dog in a wide arc around them. They smiled and greeted him as anyone would friendly a dog, and we passed by each other. They had been approaching along the same sidewalk, in what would have been a perfectly normal interaction for anyone else. But for me, just as I had passed by, I noticed something which had chilled my blood and caused the immediate ejection of the peace of mind to which I had meekly managed to hold on in those days. From a distance, I had seen three distinct spiritual histories, three ultra-physical emanations unique to each person. But as I passed within hand's reach of that group, I realized that there were only two spiritual histories present. The person farthest away, the leftmost in relation to my position, had drawn the spiritual history of the middle person over himself, and somehow distorted it so that it appeared differently. I had never witnessed the sharing of spiritual histories before, even among families. My parents who remained totally ignorant of my susceptibility have very different histories, for example. The histories are impossible to mix up, and are more distinct, more unique than DNA, if you can believe it. Likewise, I had never seen someone who lacked a spiritual history. When I realized what I had seen, I stopped in place, ignoring the tugging of my dog who had retired of the walk by then and wanted to return home. It was not the mere shock of having seen this unusual phenomenon, but also the implications introduced by it. My mind immediately birthed and considered the question, what does it mean? And like many existential questions which are not immediately answerable, 
fear sparked to life within my heart. When I looked back at the group, which had continued walking past me, my unrest was not assuaged by what I saw. In fact, my fear blossomed into actual dread, and my already dark outlook on life had blackened. I saw the person who had lacked a spiritual history turn to me, and in a brief yet unforgettable moment, watched as they suddenly exuded a powerful spiritual history. Like a black flame that spontaneously and violently issued from some noxious incense utilized by a deplorable sorcerer and his wicked practices. And I knew, after having seen countless histories, that this person's history was not human. And that beside those two ordinary people was something wholly alien to our species and planet. Compared to this black, more so in elemental nature than visible color, history... The histories of the two ordinary humans seemed vestigial, diminutive, almost lifeless. If spiritual histories could be seen as reflections of life, and to me, this was appalling because I had never given much thought to the measurement of life in degrees of substantiality. Human histories, though unique, were more or less equal in perceptible intensity. I saw as much of one history as another, but this new history... This emanation that raged like a monstrous fire in comparison to these smoldering embers beside it had set a new standard for life, forced me to reconsider what that word meant. I can't imagine anything more terrifying, more psychologically and existentially poisonous to the human mind as it exists today than for a person to doubt the validity of his own existence. People question their sanity all the time. I did for the first few years. People question the reality. These simulation theory is pretty commonly known, and more accepted than most other conspiracies and fantastical theories regarding our world and its place in the universe. But in both examples, the idea emerges from the base consideration, a coping mechanism perhaps, that there is a stability of mind or realness of being that can be obtained or exists elsewhere. But in my case, upon seeing that unprecedented emanation, I began to doubt the substance, and therefore the authenticity of human life, judged by the metric of spiritual history output. If a person's history was a total chronology of their being, then the inhuman emanation was a chronicle of several systems worth of histories. Not just an entire civilized species, but a vast, cosmos-spanning network of histories, all contained within this single emanation. It was in an immeasurable, unfathomable abundance of life that not only dwarfed but existentially overshadowed the collective histories of humanity. These descriptions, of course, are very vague, abstract, and speculative, and I doubt, even with all this exposition, that I've accurately conveyed how I felt in that moment, but they'll have to do. Just as quickly as the inhuman spiritual history had flared up, it had dissipated or was dismissed, and the middle person's spiritual history was again drawn over the other. Neither person's carrying regular histories noticed this incident, because like everyone else, they were oblivious to the very idea of spiritual histories. The third person, the imposter, turned and faced the direction they were going, while I stood dumbstruck, horrified and suddenly sunk into depths of being deeper and darker than I had ever been in before. I want to say 
that I went on to see more of these entities. That after this initial meeting, this new exponentially more spiritual species revealed itself to me in different places, and different forms. Knowing that, there was nothing I could do to stop its cosmically clandestine invasion and usurpation of the human race. But that, that wasn't the case. In the two years that have passed, I haven't seen a single entity like it, nor have I seen it, or the person it is masquerading as anywhere else. It was just a horrific chance meeting with a cosmic interloper. How it came to Earth or why, I doubt I'll ever know. But what I've discovered about it, and myself, from that brief meeting it stayed with me, has haunted me pretty much every moment of my life since then. I have one final thing to share, an incident which will hopefully help you understand that even seeing a regular person's spiritual history can have nightmarish effects. This happened yesterday and is the reason I've decided to finally talk about my unique condition. One benefit, the softest possible use of the word, of being able to see people's spiritual histories is having a glance in their immediate fates. Man knowing whether or not I would have any uncomfortable or even disastrous encounters with them. I've never had to avoid any sort of final destination moment before, but I have managed to sidestep potentially life-changing incidents and conversations that would have forced me to restructure the entire day to accommodate them. Like yesterday, I avoided being robbed. It wasn't some moment of heroism, I hadn't exactly intentionally saved myself. I was walking home from a pizza shop, there are still some things I can enjoy in life. Late at night when a man in his early 30s and extremely haggard stopped me as I rounded a corner, knife poised in my belly. He stood inches away and I saw the billowing emanation of his history up close. His eyes were narrowed dark, his mouth set into a thin, seemingly immovable line. The visage of someone who was familiar with hardship and struggle and had no qualms with introducing such things into the lives of others. He spoke a single word, wallet, and pressed the tip of the knife against awfully thin fabric of my shirt. As I mentioned, my life hasn't been great, hasn't been normal, but in that moment, I still naturally valued the idea of it. I didn't want to die, so I did as he requested, and removed my wallet from my pocket. Luckily, I had had about $25 in cash. I don't normally carry cash, but I decided to get cash back at the store so I could put a few bucks in the tip jar at the pizza place. But as I reached between the leathery folds to withdraw the bills, I happened to glance up at the man and found myself gazing deeply into his spiritual history. I don't usually peer into people's history. I respect it as an aspect of their personal privacy, but within such close proximity, it was virtually unavoidable. And I saw something almost as horrifying as the sight of that alien interloper two years ago. In this man's history, in his future, I watched him perform another transaction. But this time, his would-be victim was not an innocent pedestrian as I was. Instead of submitting and offering up his wallet, the person grappled with the mugger, eventually overpowering him. He then withdrew a phone from his pocket, made a call that lasted only a few seconds, and then with one hand around the mugger's neck, dragged him into the impenetrable darkness of a nearby alleyway. A few minutes later, a car pulled up, and the man forced the mugger inside. After that, they drove for a little less than an hour, and upon arriving at a very remote site far outside of town, 
proceeded to do absolutely appalling things to the unsuspecting criminal. His history, his future, ended there. Brutally, terribly, mercilessly. I watched all this in a few moments and my face clearly expressed my repulsion and fright at the loathsome images. I must have looked insane, reacting so viscerally to nothing. A reaction the mugger must have found odd, nonsensical for what to him would have been a common everyday occurrence. His confusion quickly gave way to unease and he lowered the knife, muttering something that I didn't hear. And keeping his eyes on me, he backed away into the darkness ahead, and was left shaking, my heart pounding uncontrollably. I had felt no specific sympathy for this man, but was still nonetheless horrified by what he had soon experienced. Even as my mind recoiled from the images, I had already come to the conclusion that there was nothing I could say to deter him from future prospects, that in the end, my reaction and escape would not be taken as the fateful sign of unpredictability and dangerousness of his poorly chosen profession. So I went home, a belly full of pizza, a wallet full of cash, but with a heart already hardened into black, darkened further by the grim and dreadful future I had seen. These things, these incidents of terrifying clarity, of morbid prescience, are what I must live with. If I could, I would have a normal life, under virtually any definition of that word. Today's sponsor is one that helps me out every day in my commute, Audible. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment, featuring an enormous array of audiobooks, podcasts, comedy, guided wellness sessions, and so much more. Recently, I've been taking the opportunity to listen through some of the classics that I've glossed over in the past. I'm currently enjoying The Exorcist by William Peter Blatty, and wow, is it a great listen. Being able to absorb the audiobooks I find interesting enriches my mundane drives immensely. I actually look forward to my morning commute now that I have Audible to accompany me around town. I'll admit that I've even stayed parked for a bit too long after reaching where I'm going, just so I can reach the thrilling conclusion of the chapter I'm listening to. No matter what genre you're interested in, Audible has you covered. I've found myself bouncing around to random titles I never thought I would enjoy before, but ended up loving. Audible makes it easy to explore new content in just a few quick clicks, and the results are always interesting. New members can always try Audible for 30 days absolutely free. Visit audible.com slash creepscast or text creepscast to 500-500. Again, that's audible.com slash creepscast or text creepscast to 500-500 for a free 30-day trial. Thank you to Audible for sponsoring today's podcast. I made up a crazy list of rules to prank the new hire. Now she's missing and I might be next. Written by Skittish Reflections The only reason I did it was because I thought it would be funny. People prank new employees all the time, don't they? And it wasn't like I expected her to fall for it. I just wanted to break the ice and share a few laughs. Working at this gas station convenience store was slow, especially after midnight. And I just wanted to leave her in good spirits. 
I was alone in the store that evening, bored out of my mind as I waited for the new girl. Mr. Sahir had told me to train. As I daydreamed, my eyes wandered over to the yellow paper signs that Mr. Sahir had taped up on the wall. No stealing allowed. No guns allowed. No knives allowed. No smoking allowed. No arguing allowed. No damaging property allowed. You get the idea. Everything you don't want in your gas station and store was typed out and taped up. There were dozens of yellow paper signs all overlapping. I didn't think the customers could even read them. Yet, we never had any of the problems posted, so they must have done the trick somehow. It was those signs that gave me an idea. Instead of rules for customers, I could make up a rules list for the new hire and pretend all us employees had to follow it. Hilarious ideas were already popping in my mind, and I grabbed my phone and jotted them down. I ended up with the following. Sahir's gas and go graveyard shift rules. 1. When you start your shift at 12am, you must turn the radio on, tune it between any two stations so that they overlap, and play it at medium volume. 2. If you hear a soccer game being announced in an enthusiastic Spanish from outside, you must grab the Vuvuzela from under the counter and blow as hard as you can for 20 seconds. 3. A thick purple liquid will periodically ooze from beneath the soda fridge. And do not mop it. Instead, crush salt and vinegar chips and sprinkle them over the puddle. Once it turns a pale gray, place appropriate signs around the puddle and leave it to harden. At the end of your shaft, crack the brittle remains, sweep them up, and throw them away. 4. If you smell loot fisk at any time, you must leave your post immediately, hide in the bathroom, turn off the lights, and tum the Titanic song. Once you're done, it is safe to exit. 5. Every Thursday, a large woman with braces and half a mustache will enter the store and ask about Joe. You must nod and point towards pump number 4. Do not speak to her. Do not make any sounds. Remain standing still until she exits. 6. If it is a full moon, take a newspaper, spread it out on the floor beside the ice freezer outside, and sprinkle Skittles on top. Once done, go back inside. At the end of your shift, check the newspaper. If these Skittles are there, throw everything away. If an older this black substance is left in their place, wear gloves, collect it in an empty water bottle, and close it tight before throwing everything away. 7. On the third of every month, a fluorescent orange Hummer will stop at pump number one and honk three times. You must run out immediately and dance the jig as you fill their car with $100 of gas. Once done, the driver's side window will open a crack and two $100 bills will slide out. Accept them with a curtsy. Remain outside until the Hummer drives away and is out of sight. 8. A seven-year-old girl wearing a cowboy hat while chewing tobacco may drop by between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. If she doesn't speak, ignore her and she will leave in a few minutes. If she starts yodeling, you must clap and stomp to the rhythm of We Will Rock You by Queen until she is done. 9. At exactly 4.44 a.m., you will hear rustling from the chip stand. Ignore it. 
If the rustling continues past 5 a.m., or if it turns into crunching, you must burp. If you cannot produce one, fake one. Continue burping until the rustling and or crunching stops. 10. Sir Riss drops by on Windless Dawns. He will select a tabloid magazine and a pack of cigarettes. If he requests menthol, carry on as usual. If he does otherwise, you must open the pack of cigarettes, break each stick, pile the tobacco on the magazine, and arrange them artistically. You must then step back and let Sir Riss appraise your work. If he snorts the tobacco, nod and ring up his items. If he hocks a loogie on the floor, you must try again. See, they were completely ridiculous and utterly harmless rules. I still wanted the list to look legit at first glance, though, so I went to Mr. Sahir's office and printed it out on the same yellow paper he used for all the signs. I then creased it, frayed the edges, and even left coffee stains here and there to give it a well-worn look. The girl came by at around 11.30pm, and I knew right away that she would get a kick out of the rules. She had a punk rock thing going on and she dropped her motorcycle helmet on the counter with a playful smirk as she introduced herself as Brooke. After some back and forth, some training and some flirting, I gave her the list. I put on my most solemn expression as I stressed how important it was to follow them and she read them with one eyebrow caught, her smile growing until she burst out into laughter. Do any of the new employees fall for this? She asked, looking up at me with a chuckle. I actually wrote it just for you, I replied, trying to stop myself from grinning like a moron. She tilted her head, her eyes twinkling. Then how about you give me your number in case anything happens that you forgot to write down? I don't think I could have said my phone number any faster. So, is there really a Vuvuzela back here? She asked as she walked around and peeked under the counter. Oh no, we keep it in the back, I joked. She smiled and sat down, propping her legs up. So, Miles, are you leaving or will you stay and help me face the yodeling cowgirls and the purple puddles? I really, really wanted to stay, but I had early classes tomorrow. Now, I've given you enough training, young Padawan. Now, I leave this fortress in your hands. I won't fail you. I know. I tried to be suave as I flung my bag over my shoulder, but I knocked over a box of chocolates and spent a few minutes collecting them with a red face while she laughed. I put everything back, shot her a tight smile and ran out of the store, beating myself up for being such a klutz, but apparently she was into that because she had texted me once I got home. I had to dig through backup files on my cloud to find these text messages since I lost my phone, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Brooke. Hey, check it out. Rule numero uno. 12.20 a.m. She had recorded a little voice message of the overlapping radio stations and that was it for me. I knew she was the one. We chatted for almost an hour before I worked up the courage to ask her out. How about coffee tomorrow before you shift? Boy, you really went all out. Okay, don't rub it in. Dinner instead. No, I mean a lady. How much did you pay her to wear half a mustache? What? 
Okay, she's actually got braces. Is she going to ask about Joe now? Oh, she did. This is a riot. I love it. So, should I point to Pump 4 or do I clap for a good performance or what? I have no idea what you're talking about. Are you pranking me back or something? Hey. If she's real, take a pic then. Earth to Brooke. Okay, you got me. It's a good prank. Brooke, I'm serious. Text me back. I stopped messaging after that. I didn't want to get all grumpy in the chat. I loved a good prank, but I was upset that she had started it just as I was asking her out. First, I thought that was her subtle way of saying that she wasn't interested, even though she had been super blunt the entire time that we were talking. But then I figured she just wanted the last laugh, and I didn't want to give it to her. I knew that I had early classes, but my pride was more important, and I never backed down from a prank war. I grabbed my keys and drove back to Sahir's at Gas and Go. After parking beside Brooke's motorcycle, I found the loudest Spanish soccer announcer possible and blared the video through my car's speakers. Leaving the engine running, I snuck over and peeked through the store window, trying to stop myself from giggling as I imagined Brooke searching in panic for a Vuvuzela. She wasn't behind the counter. Her bag and motorcycle helmet were still on top, though. I walked in. The radio was still playing the overlapping stations, and I made my way to the back, but Brooke wasn't there either. Frowning, I returned to my car and shut everything down before checking the motorcycle. It had to be hers. It was the only vehicle there other than mine. Unbelieving that she had taken the prank to the extreme... I walked back inside and announced that she was the prank queen and she could come out now. And that was when I noticed the thick, purple puddle oozing from beneath the soda fridge. At the time, I couldn't believe Brooke went to all these lengths. I had no idea what she could have used to make slime that purple and gooey, so I poked it with my foot. And I shot back as my shoe began sizzling. I dropped my phone as I yanked my shoe off. The slime had eaten through the sole and cinched my sock, but it hadn't contacted my skin yet. I looked down in fearful bewilderment and I gawked at the side of my phone, or what remained to my phone. Pieces of plastic metal and glass dissolving in the growing pulsating puddle. This couldn't be Brooke's doing. Unless she was a psychopath. What even was the substance? And it was at that moment that a terrible odor filled the store. I gagged and pulled my collar over my nose and mouth, but it wasn't enough as I felt my dinner rising up. I ran to the bathroom, slammed the door and vomited in the toilet. After my retching became unproductive, I leaned against the wall. And I froze when I heard heavy creaking coming from outside. Holding my breath to avoid the putrid smell, I placed my ear against the door and my blood ran cold when I heard a deep, thundering heartbeat resonating beneath the creeks. Goosebumps spread across my skin as the heartbeat got louder and the creaking became more rapid, and a new sound joined the terrifying chorus. Gurgled breathing. As if that wasn't enough to make me pee my pants, freezing water began seeping from beneath the door. I yelped and clambered up on the toilet, 
trembling as I tried to figure out what was going on. This couldn't be Brooke. But if this wasn't her, then who was it? And what happened to Brooke? The water had already covered the floor of the tiny bathroom, and I covered my mouth when I saw dead fish floating on its surface. I didn't know what to do. I didn't have my phone, and there was no one around. The gurgled breathing got more and more labored as the creaking sped up, and the heartbeat amplified, and I began hyperventilating, which just filled my lungs with the rancid smell hovering around me. Lutefisk. The smell was lutefisk. I recognized it from when my cousin tried and failed to make that fickle dish. My thoughts went back to the list in disbelief. The purple puddle, the lutefisk, the half-mustached lady that Brooke had mentioned. I had no idea how any of this was possible, and a small part of me still hoped this was all an elaborate prank to make me look like a fool of myself, but I caved. Stretching my arm, I turned off the lights and remained balanced on the toilet as I hummed the Titanic song to the best of my ability. It had been years since I had heard it, and I worried it wouldn't be enough. But to my terrified delight, the gurgled breathing now turned into gurgled humming as I gained an eerie duet partner. As we hummed, the creaking slowed down and the thudding pulse ebbed, and I took a tearful breath of relief when the overpowering stench of loot fisk was replaced by that of my own vomit still chilling in the toilet. As I hummed the last note, I held my breath and waited. It was a dead silent. I opened the lights. The floor was bone dry, not a fish to be seen. Climbing down, I flushed my mess with a shaky hand as I looked at my sweaty face in the mirror, my eyes wide with utter stupefaction. For a moment, I thought I had imagined it all. It was late, I had been working all day and I hadn't been sleeping well. It made more sense than accepting that I just duetted with a disembodied, drowning voice. I walked out and everything seemed fine. I made my way to the counter and the list was there, right beside a Brooks bag and helmet and her phone. On the floor, there was a yellow puddle. You know what? Everything was not fine. Something had terrified Brooke enough for her to leave everything and run. Unless, no, I don't want to think about that. I nearly jumped out of my skin when a loud horn honked three times. I turned to the window and my jaw fell open when I saw a fluorescent orange hummer parked at pump number one. I didn't know how, but everything on my list seemed to be coming true. A hummer was driven by people. They weren't disembodied sounds from behind a door. I could talk to them, see how all this was possible. I approached the vehicle with hesitant steps and with a deep breath. I knocked on the tinted window of the driver's side. The moment my knuckles touched the glass, they fused to it. Panicking, I tried to yank my hand away, but the window just seemed to suck it in. I yelled for help as I banged my other fist against the glass, only for that hand to melt as well. My heart floundered in my chest as I struggled, but everything I did just made my situation worse. Finding myself elbows deep, I did the only thing that I could think of. I jigged. The more I hopped, shimmied, and kicked, the more the window released my arms, and I stumbled away when I regained my freedom. 
Terrified of what else could happen, I continued to dance as I filled up the tank with a hundred dollars worth of gas. While still jigging, I stood by the window, and I accepted the two hundred dollar bills with a curtsy before I remained outside until they drove out of view. Panting with exertion and apprehension, I made my way back inside and gasped at the size of the throbbing purple puddle. It had taken up an entire quarter of the store now. I rushed towards the chip pile in a frantic frenzy, ripping open the salt and vinegar chips and crushing them, and flinging the crumbs over the slime. Even after I depleted the entire salt and vinegar selection, the puddle still hadn't changed color. Desperate, I crushed these salted chips and poured vinegar over them, before I hurled the soggy concoction over the ooze. After half an hour, I fell to my knees in exhausted relief when the puddle finally turned to pale gray. I wished I'd had time to breathe after that, because a little girl in a cowboy hat walked through the door, spitting tobacco on the chip bag littered floor. I froze, drawing a blank at the worst possible moment. I had no idea what I was supposed to do. The list was on the counter, but I didn't know if I should move or not. I stayed on my knees, watching her peruse the aisles as if it was perfectly natural for a kid to be shopping at 3.15 in the morning. She began yodeling, but my memory continued to fail me. I stared at her twitching, not sure what I should do. She glared at me as her yodeling became more shrill and I winced. Doing nothing wasn't working, so I took the chance and inched my way towards the counter only to yelp as a whip snapped in front of me. I turned to the girl in shock as I backed away in horror. Whips had replaced her arms, and her body had elongated like a snake, several more whip-like appendages sprouting from her sides. Her yodeling had now become a high-pitched hiss as another whip snapped beside me, and I scrambled up and ran in the opposite direction, locking myself in Mr. Sahir's office. His computer worked and I managed to look up the list on the cloud. Clamp and stop to We Will Rock You. How could I forget that? I began clapping and stomping to the rhythm as loud as I could, sweat cascading down my already glazed face as I feared it was too late. She was done yodeling. This wasn't going to work anymore. I sank into a chair out of breath and near a mental breakdown as I closed my ears the hissing beyond intolerable. That's where I am now, hiding in Mr. Sahir's office with tissues stuffed in my ears. There's no phone in here, but I did post on all my social media. Help is on the way, but I don't know if they'll get to me in time, or if they'll be able to stop the hissing whip snake girl and any of the other horrors I had inadvertently created. I don't know what happened to Brooke, I just hope that she made it somewhere safe. If I'm not found in time, I just wanted to get this out. Brooke, I'm sorry. I didn't mean for any of this to happen. My work for the U.S. government. Something strange is happening in northern Alaska. Written by Operation Blackout. My name is Jack, and for some backstory, I'm a pilot for the U.S. Air Force. 
A guy I know named Alan told me about this page, so I decided to tell my encounter with a UFO. This story takes place in 2020 in northern Alaska. I am stationed at Ellendorf Air Force Base to be exact, about 30 miles away from Anchorage. I've been stationed here for nearly two years. I fly the F-22 Raptor, most people will say the best aircraft to ever exist, which is true. Other than the occasional intercept of Russian bombers here once every few months, nothing really ever happens. I love that it's peaceful here. No sorties constantly. No mandatory PT times. Good food, real nice people, and nice cold weather. I've always been a person to like the cold weather. I have my own apartment basically on the base. It was a one bed, one bathroom. And it had a kitchen and a dining room too. It's a nice little home, close by to the hangars, just in case I have to do a sortie. My wingman has an apartment right next to mine, since both of our jets were right next to each other in the hangar. Me and my wingman, Braxton, are really close. We've been best friends for about seven years now. He has a real nice family, two kids and a wife. His life is perfect. I was the best man at his wedding and I was even there for his firstborn. He's the closest thing I'll ever have to a brother. This story starts a day before the incident. Birds begin chirping as I begin to wake up. My door unlocks as Braxton walks in. Hey, good morning, Jack. You ready to get some PT in? My God, Braxton, I'll be out in five. Just wait for me by the exit. After we do this, you want to get some food? He asked. Yeah, of course, knowing me, I'll be starving. Alright, I'm gonna head down. Okay, I'll be down in five. Copy that, sir. As he saluted me in a joking way. I chuckled as he walked away. I put on my workout clothes and walked out to meet him at the exit. It took you long enough, he said. Shut up, let's go. We jogged about three miles together around the base before we went back to grab some food. It's only 12pm, earlier than usual said Braxton. Yeah, man, that means we can get some food earlier than usual. What's your wife fixing for breakfast today? I asked. Pancakes and bacon. Yeah, this is gonna be a good meal. I said as we walked into his apartment, which was much larger than mine. I was greeted by his kids. I said hi to all of them and then said hi to his wife as I sat down and began to dig in. After I finished eating up, I got up and said thank you to his wife. I'll talk to you later, Braxton. See you later, man. I walked out and closed the door behind me. I went back to my apartment and unlocked the door and walked in. Sat down on my couch and grabbed my Xbox controller and began playing some Xbox. After about three hours of playing and watching movies, I got up and went to the kitchen to cook me some toast and butter. It was around 4pm, so about time for lunch. And I fixed myself a bologna sandwich and got back to gaming. Around 7 I got up and made some chicken for dinner. And after dinner I went to lay down and watch some movies on my bed. After about 2 hours of watching Criminal Minds I fell asleep. And I was awoken by alarms from the base. My door busts open and Braxton screams. Command says radar is picking up an unidentified aircraft about 700 miles out. I jumped out of bed and quickly put on my flight suit. 
let's go, and we ran down to the hangar. The ground crew was inside, loading up her F-22s with AIM-120 Sparrows and AIM-9X Sidewinders. This definitely isn't a drill, I screamed. Yeah, you don't say. I ran to the side of my jet and put on my helmet, got onto the ladder and got into the cockpit. The canopy closed and the ground crew began towing me and Braxton out of the hangar. Strata 1 and Strata 2, you two are moving 700 miles north to intercept unknown aircrafts. We have no clue what it is and we know it's not a civilian or a US aircraft, so you have permission to engage. We've tried to make contact, but we have received no response, said the control tower. Copy that, Braxton and I said. Strider 1 weapons check, all weapons good. Strider 2 weapons check, all weapons good. Strider 1, you're cleared to taxi. Copy that. I moved my F-22 to the runway and pushed my engine power to the max. My jet rushed down the runway until I was airborne. Strider 1, altitude restriction lifted. Form up with Strider 2 at 10,000 feet. I began increasing altitude until I got to 10,000 feet and maintained a speed of 500 miles per hour. Hey Strider 1, this is Strider 2, forming up on your left wing. Copy that Strider 2. I looked out my cockpit and saw him pulling up on my left wing. Alright Braxton, increase speed to 1200 miles per hour so we can catch up with this thing. Nah, hey, copy that Jack. I looked back as both of us broke the sound barrier and as both our speeds began increasing up to 1,200 miles per hour. Hey Braxton, look at your radar. We're picking it up. It's about 534 miles away. We'll be there in about 45 minutes. Yeah, I see it and it's going pretty slow for a plane. It could be a helicopter, said Braxton. I don't know about that. They would have responded and if it's Russian, we would have detected them crossing the Bering Strait. Yeah, I know something strange is happening and I don't like it. It's also pretty weird the command has given us a kill on sight order. Something must be up. I said, well, alright, we're about 290 miles away, so it won't be long until we reach lock-on distance. Alright, once we hit 120 miles away from the target, arm your AIM-120 arms, I said to Braxton. Copy that, he replied. Our raptors are flying at around 20,000 feet in pure darkness. The only way we could see is with our helmet's night vision. 150 miles away. Copy that, Strider 2. I said as our jets tore through the sky, heading towards the unknown aircraft. As we flew closer, I looked at the radar as we hit 130. Within 30 seconds, we hit the 125 mark. I flipped a switch and I aimed. Alright Braxton, once we can secure a radar, lock, open fire. Copy that. I got it. I lit to my control panel and flipped the switch and opened the missile bay. Firing. I fired two missiles at the unknown aircraft. I saw them tear through the sky at Mach 4 until I couldn't see them anymore. Shortly after I heard on comms. I got the lock too, firing. As I watched his missiles tear through the sky... Continue flying until you can confirm that the unknown aircraft has been downed, said Command. This is Strider 1, copy that. This is Strider 2, copy. Braxton and I waited anxiously as we watched our missiles on radar close in on the aircraft. We watched as they got closer and closer until the missiles disappeared. 
and I watched as the unknown aircraft didn't disappear off of the radar. Did we miss? Asked Braxton. If those missed, we are not dealing with a helicopter. Do you still have a radar lock? Yeah, I do. Well, let's fire the remaining AIM-120s and if that doesn't work, then we'll move in closer and use our AIM-9Xs. Copy that, Jack. Firing, I said. My missile bay doors opened as the last two AIM-120s launched. And seconds later, Braxton did the same. We watched our missiles go through the sky on our radar until they disappeared, just like the ones before. Our distance was about 65 miles away from the target. May we're closing in on it. We'll be there in about 15 minutes. Arm your AIM-9s. AIM-9s armed, I said. At this point, I could tell that Braxton was getting nervous. And heck, so was I. I didn't know what I was dealing with. As we closed in, I realized the unknown aircraft was decreasing in altitude. Is it going down? I asked. It might be, but I don't know. It's going down rapidly. Decrease throttle and go into a dive to try and receive a lock. I said. Copy that. I pushed up on the stick as my aircraft began to dive. We both got into a steep dive towards the target until I received a radar lock. I got a lock, firing sidewinders. I said as my side missile bay doors opened, as I fired two sidewinders at the target, and I watched as Braxton did the same. Our missiles soared through the sky, heading towards the target, but this time I saw the missiles explode. I watched as the aircraft continued to decrease in altitude, and I decreased speed to about 500 miles per hour as I tried to decrease altitude to 5,000 feet. As soon as I went underneath the clouds, I saw something that I will never forget. My blood went cold and my body went numb. I saw a giant saucer in flames slowly decreasing in altitude. My god, I said fearfully. What, what is that? said Braxton. I don't know. My hands were shaking at the sight. There were many small explosions on the ship while it slowly went down. Jack, look. Screamed Braxton as five pods launched from the saucer. Jesus Christ. I screamed as a pure adrenaline and instinct kicked in. All five pods began charging at Braxton and I. Evasive maneuvers. Braxton screamed as me and him both began evading the pods that went past us. I looked behind and realized the pods were coming back around. I pulled a 180 degree turn to face my aircraft at the pods. The G's were hard on my body, but the adrenaline was in full control. The pods began shooting projectiles at my jet. I realized this and barrel rolled over to my right, lining my 20mm gun up with one of the pods. I pulled the trigger and watched as my bullets tore the pod apart. I got one, I screamed. Jack, I got one on my tail, I need your help, said Braxton in an absolutely terrified voice. Copy that, I'm coming around. I pulled a 90 degree turn and sped up to reach Braxton's location. I saw him only about 5 miles out. I pushed the throttle up to the max and sped up to get onto the pod's tail. As I got closer I slowed down a little and I got on its tail. The pod had a small engine emitting a blue light out of its back. The blue light exposed the weapon on the bottom that was trying to shoot down my wingman. Alright, I'm on it. Thank God, get him off of me. Braxton said fearfully. Turn left on my mark, 
Three, two, one. I watched as his jet turned left and the pod went straight into my crosshairs. I pulled the trigger and watched the pod explode midair and fall down to the ground. Two more coming up front, Braxton said as I watched as the two pods closed in fast. I pulled a 25% turn and angled my jet towards the pods. I pulled the trigger at the pod and watched the third pod explode. Another one down. Hey, I got one too. Command then chimed in. Strider Squadron, good work. Attempt to ground the main target and eliminate any other threats. Reinforcements are on the way. This is Strider 1 to command. What's the ETA on those reinforcements? May about 15 minutes, they said. Copy. Braxton, form up on my left wing. Let's move to engage. Copy that, Jack. I looked at my radar and began moving to the location on the main aircraft. About three minutes go by and we arrived. The craft was a saucer that was leaning downwards on its front side. The ship was in flames and the front was opened up and tore apart. The ship had four massive engines and only two were active. The front two were down and the other two were the only things allowing it to slowly decrease in altitude. Jesus Christ, I said. Come on, we have a mission to do. We need to take this thing down, Braxton said nervously. Target the right engine and I'll take the left one. Copy that. I moved my aircraft into a position to fire on the aircraft. As soon as I got a clear shot, I opened fire with my 22mm cannons. After firing on it for about two seconds, the engine exploded, and the ship began to fall rapidly. Not even 30 seconds later, the saucer crashes into the snow and explodes. This is Strider 1. Target is down. Sending the coordinates. Copy that, Strider 1. Good work. Cover the area until the reinforcements arrive. Copy that. I decreased my altitude to 3,000 feet and watched as I flew by the downed ship that was in rubble and flames. Jesus, man, what just happened? I don't know. I really don't. We patrolled the area for about 15 minutes until we got the all clear to return to base. It took us about 45 minutes to return. Strider 1 and 2, when you land, report to my office immediately. Copy that. Me and Braxton both said. Braxton decreased altitude and landed his F-22 on the airstrip safely and backed it into his hangar. After he was off the runway, I went in for a landing. I deployed my air brake, decreasing throttle and altitude until I was about 450 feet up and going 250 miles per hour when I deployed my landing gear and landed safely. The ground crew escorted my jet to its hangar and backed it in. As soon as I got out of my jet, three guys in full black suits came up to me. The commander wants to see you, one of them said, and I began walking over to the office. The commander sat us down and began talking to us. No one except for the higher-ups will know about this. If somebody leaks intel, you will be punished. Here are two non-disclosure agreements. Sign them or we will force you to sign them. I looked up and said, Okay, sir, and began signing the papers. My hands were shaking the entire time after that. Braxton also signs and we both stand up. Okay, gentlemen, thank you for your support. Now go get some rest, the commander said. Me and Braxton both went back to our apartments and when I walked in, I got on my bed and just thought about what had happened that day. This is something I'll never forget. 
I met a very strange boy in the woods during a missing persons case. Written by 02321 I currently work as a cop in a pretty small town. It's surrounded by woods and parks. The forests are not part of any national park system, but I feel as if it's as big as one. I have to be vague about the area because I don't think my boss would appreciate me talking about this case. It's still pretty big news considering nothing ever happens in this area. When a child goes missing in the woods, it should be big news. When two go missing, it's more than news. I never told anyone the truth about what happened in those woods when I took a day looking for those children. I am certain that if my boss heard any of this, he would strip me of my badge and send me off to a head doctor. But I have to tell this in hopes that I get any information about who I came across that day. I had an early midlife crisis and I changed careers. I come from a long line of police officers and I had planned for that to be my future. But because of some complicated and boring reasons, I choose to do something else. Then, later on in life, I regretted my choices and did what I needed to do to become a cop. Even though I looked on the older side, I didn't actually have a lot of experience in law enforcement. And the place that hired me didn't need someone who did, just a person that looked the part. Nothing happened in this small town. Just some easy-to-break-up bar fights. Heck, they couldn't even really be called fights. I feel as if they only hired me so I could go through their ancient filing system and update it because my boss refused to do it. While I was organizing the mountain of old paperwork and cases, I found out this town had a pretty regular pattern of hikers going missing on the trails. But after looking at the national average... I guessed our town wasn't anything special. Nothing sinister going on. People just get lost. I had only been working at my new job for about six months when the uproar started. A child had gone missing on one of the easier and short hiking trails with his family. His father had turned his head to talk to his wife and when he looked back, his son was gone. They had thought that he had just ducked behind a tree to scare them, but after looking through the entire area, they grew panicked. The mother stayed where they last saw him and the father ran to get help by the ranger station, and they quickly organized a search for the boy. The mother stayed in that spot for nearly ten hours, waiting and watching, not knowing what else to do. Now, I'm not a hiker myself, but I joined the volunteers and I searched for the boy. Any spare moment I had, I was doing whatever I could to help. I ended up with hundreds of bug bites and torn ankles from my new boots, but I never complained. A child was out there in the woods and we couldn't find any trace of him. And then a girl was lost. She was a classmate of the boy and wanted to help. Some volunteers humored her and let her run water to people searching, but she could only go a few feet into the woods. If she saw someone coming near the trail end, she could run up to them to give them a cold bottle of water. 
She was inside the entire time. Again, someone turned their head as she took a step onto the trail, and when they turned back, she was gone. The people who she had been walking towards hadn't turned their heads. They were completely bewildered and questioned what they had seen. She simply was gone in the blink of an eye. No one had a logical reason for it. So, they didn't dwell on how the children had disappeared. Only that they now had two missing. Helicopters came and sent dogs joined the search party. But after a week, the search was trying to recover a body. Two children under the age of 10 in the woods for that long wasn't likely to last. I had been doing whatever I could in those days, but I felt useless. My boss noticed how bad this case was on my health and forced me to take a day off. After all, I wasn't a hiker or an expert in cases like these. I had done everything I could and if I kept hiking, I would burn myself out. He felt like there was more than enough people looking that I could rest for a day and then got back at it full force. I did not listen to him. I did go to bed early that night before, so I could be up at the crack of dawn to go back out on the trails. I wasn't a part of the volunteer teams and my boss told me that I shouldn't be out there. They gave me some looks but they let me go hiking, as long as I promised to stay on the short trails and not go into the woods. Which I agreed. I could get lost and that wouldn't help anyone. I knew that I wouldn't find any traces of the children on a trail that had been looked over at least a hundred times before, but I still couldn't just stay at home. So that's how I spent my free day, hiking trails and getting more blisters on my ankles. I had a backpack and some supplies. Even though I'd hiked for the entire day, I wasn't very hungry. I think the stress was getting to me. I still had some water and granola bars in my pack near the end of the day. I was in the middle of a somewhat longer trail that I had gotten permission to search on when the sun had started to set. I decided to start heading back but knew it would be dark by the time that I arrived at the end of the trail and to the ranger station in the front of the woods. I knew I wasn't going to find anything but I still felt disappointed ending the day empty handed. The orange light of the sun had faded into a gray light. A strange gray light that made bright colors pop. I had forgotten how strange that time of day looked. My orange shirt nearly looked neon in the gray light. And because of the odd light, I saw a bright white on the trail easier than I might have had at a different time of the day. The trail had a slope to it. I had just reached the top ready to go down when I saw the white on the trail. I squinted to see a person standing wearing a long white and baggy sweater. The day had been hot and not at all sweater weather. The person was short and my heart started to race. But this person didn't look short enough to be seven. But it was still very strange to see a preteen just standing in the middle of the trail. I went down the slope and towards them, hoping I looked friendly and that they wouldn't book it into the woods. Hey, are you alright? I asked when I was a few steps away from them. At first, I thought they had been wearing a long white hat of some sort, 
but when I got closer, I saw that their hair was a pure white. Either this was a very short, older person, or this child had dyed their hair. I noticed they weren't wearing any shoes, and I found that strange. Their feet weren't dirty for walking in the woods, and I didn't see any abandoned shoes around the trail. I had no idea how they went bare feet without tearing up their soles. Hearing my voice, they turned to face me. They were a child like I had first thought. Their hair fell over their face, making it hard to see their face. I guessed that they were a boy even if they had a hair on the longer side. Alarm bells were ringing in the back of my head, but I just couldn't ignore a lost child in the middle of the woods. Mama Cop, you're safe. My name is Hugh. I was carrying my badge in my backpack, and I huddled out for the boy to see. The boy still hadn't spoken or reacted in the slightest, but at least he was looking at me, showing that he was listening. Are you lost? Where are your parents? I asked as gently as I could. I couldn't blame the boy for being scared of a random man coming up to him in the woods. I hoped that he had trusted me enough to bring him to the ranger station so we could get help. We had to find out where the boy's family were and make sure that he wasn't in any kind of trouble. Protective instincts I didn't even know I had were kicking in. I wanted to carry him out of the woods to make sure that he wouldn't hurt his feet walking, but getting an answer from the kid would be a win. It's best not to make him too uncomfortable. He hadn't responded to any of my questions, so I got down on his level to keep trying. What's your name? Ellie. I finally got something out of him. His voice was so soft that I could barely hear it, but I had a name. I'm going to the ranger station. How about you come with me, if you feel comfortable with it? We could hold hands so we don't get lost. I saw his hands fidget a little at the end of his large sweater as his eyes darted back and forth considering what I had asked. Because I had gotten down a bit lower, I could see his eyes through his white hair. His hair wasn't dyed. He was albino, judging by his pink, reddish eyes. A rare condition that I had never seen in person before. I heard people with the condition had bad eyesight. And it would be dark soon and I was surprised there was still light after how long we had spoke for her. Holding hands would be a good idea if he couldn't see when the sun did finally set. He came to a decision and held out his hand to let me take it. He seemed like a shy kid so I didn't push any more conversation and I took my small win. When we started to walk, I kept an eye on the ground making sure that I was guiding him away from anything that might harm his feet. I wished that I had brought a pair of extra socks that day. Ellie was very light-footed though. He carefully walked around twigs on tiptoes as if it was second nature to him. I remember not wearing shoes as a child so maybe he had adjusted without them. I wished that I had a way to leave a note where I had found him. If his parents were nearby, they would be worried, but I assumed they would go where we were headed once they couldn't find him. I had my phone on me, and I was glad that it still had a charge. Still holding Ellie's hand, 
I tried to unlock my phone with one hand. It had frozen, which was quite weird. It had never done that before. I tried to restart it and my lock screen came back on, but the clock remained the same time it was when I had first checked it. The sun still hadn't set and my phone clock wasn't moving. I wanted to call the station saying that I'd found Ellie, but no matter what I tried, my phone just refused to work. I shoved it into my pocket to try and use it again at a different time. As we walked down a slope, I got hit with a deja vu. I thought that I'd already walked this way before. In fact, I just found Ellie at the bottom, but I ignored it. The woods all looked the same to me. I could just be getting confused by my surroundings in the dark. I was never a good hiker. But when we hiked up another slope and came down again, I was seriously starting to think a tree growing on top of a boulder was the same one that we had just passed by. My throat was starting to get dry and panic was rising to my chest. Why did everything look the same? Why had the sun not set yet? And why would my phone clock not move? I pushed those worries down until we passed by the same tree growing on top of the boulder a third time. I didn't want to stress out Ellie, who had been silently walking beside me the entire time. Ellie, could you do me a favor? I don't mean to worry you, but could you stand right there as I look over that slope ahead of us? I just want to look ahead. I swear that I won't leave you. The boy gave me a nod and it looked like he didn't want to let go of my hand. But he let go and I half jogged up the trail to the small hill in front of us. When I started to walk away, Ellie had crouched over and started to shove sticks into the dirt. What I saw at the top of the hill gave me tunnel vision and I thought I was going to faint. I stood staring at Ellie crouched over playing with sticks. I looked behind me and saw the same thing. This couldn't be happening. I had to be seeing things. Maybe Ellie had a twin and they were messing with me. I jagged down and walked over to the tree that I was using as a landmark. I put my useless phone on top of the root. Ellie was staring at me and I gave him a smile. Humor me, I told him, and I started up the slope again. When I reached the top, Ellie still had his line of sticks, but I felt a weight to my pocket. My phone was no longer on the tree root. It had returned to my pocket. What in the world? I asked slowly to myself. I had to be going crazy. Maybe the stress had finally gotten to me. I couldn't be stuck in a loop. These things just didn't happen. I walked down and stopped in front of Ellie, wondering what my face looked like in that moment. If this was really happening, then Ellie might know something. After all, when I found him, the loop had started, but I wasn't ready to put any blame on him yet. I'm going to climb a tree, I said, hands on my hips. A hint of a smile flickered on Ellie's face. I had no idea what else to do. Clearly, I couldn't walk along the trail without getting brought back, but I wasn't about to risk going into the woods. I would get put back on the trail or get lost in the trees. Maybe just maybe if I climbed high enough, I could see something interesting. Or maybe the loop didn't reach high in the air. It was something that I could try. 
I placed my bag at the base of the boulder tree and started to climb. Watch my bag for me, champ. You can have the water and snacks if you want, though. I told Ellie and started to climb. I wasn't much for climbing, but the branches were thick and close together, so it made it easy. This tree was almost made for it. I slowly made my way up, getting covered in leaves, sap, and scratches from the bark. I didn't know when I should stop. I made the mistake of looking down in frozen fear for a few seconds. I learned in that moment that I was afraid of heights, but I had to keep going. I had to get out of there and find a way to get Ellie out of the woods. I don't know how long it took, but I made it nearly to the top and where I could no longer grab branches to support my weight. I looked around, seeing nothing special, but I was still in the tree, so maybe the loop didn't reach up that high. I took a risk and climbed one more branch when the world went dark. I realized that the sun had set in a blink of an eye. I looked up at a starry sky through the branches, before an immense force suddenly knocked me from my perch. It felt like an invisible hand had grabbed me around and plowed my body through all the branches that I had just climbed. The pain was nothing I had ever felt before. I heard my legs break before I felt it. My ribs were crushed and a knock to my skull thankfully, making my world dark. When I woke up, I was on the bottom of the trail right next to Ellie who I'm pretty sure was poking me with a stick. I screamed, sitting up patting my body looking for what was broken, only to find myself in one piece. I was breathing hard, looking frantically around to see if I was back in the gray light of the trail, and my body was healed. Not even the tree sap remained. Well, I guess that didn't work. I said with a small laugh, enough though that I wanted to cry. My body was healed, but I still held that memory of the pain. It was a good idea. I don't think I've ever seen someone find an opening of the loop before. Ellie commented in his small, soft voice. He had spoken about the loop. I no longer could doubt it was happening. The whole thing was now in the open and we needed to talk about it. I'm stuck in a loop. I said slowly, still not fully believing it. Yeah, you are. Ellie said with a nod. He was making doodles in the dirt with his stick as if the strangest thing wasn't happening. Like all of this was normal. I stared at him and the sticks that he had placed in a circle in the dirt. And a thought suddenly came to me. I'm stuck, but you're not. The sticks that Ellie had been playing with remained when my phone wasn't returned. It may have been because Ellie hadn't moved, but his wording made me clue in. He didn't agree we were both stuck. Just myself. I pulled my pack next to him and patted on it, giving him a place to comfortably sit. Alright, champ. Take a seat and let's figure out what's going on. With both of us and unlimited time... I'm sure we can figure out why this is happening. Uh, you're not going to accuse me of trapping you, Ellie said, and the surprised tone in his voice was the most emotion he had showed since we had met. Uh, nope, you don't seem like the type. I could have sworn that I saw his ears turn a little red through his hair. He sat on my backpack, 
knees tucked inside the sweater, making him look very small. But for the smile child he was, I knew in that moment he might not be human. But lucky for myself, he had the answers to what was going on. Humans are born to die. Most creatures are. You cannot understand an endless existence. Not truly understand it. If you did, you would become something else. That is the purpose of this loop. For you to become something else. In this place, you cannot die. You just remain for your mind to rot or turn. The one that created this place reproduces this way. If your mind turns and you become something else, it will twist your flesh into something the same as itself. The ones who cannot make the change are eaten. The loop keeps the victim's flesh. I assume the missing children on the trail were taken for food. Children don't often manage the change. I got goosebumps listening to Ellie's words. I hated the idea of those two kids being trapped the way that I was. Stuck in a forever loop, not understanding what was happening, and not being able to get out. I was lucky enough to come across someone to explain things to me. Natalie kept talking, so I pushed my thoughts aside to listen. Humans cannot break this loop. I am not human, so I cannot be trapped here. But I cannot break this loop to save you. It goes against what I am. I cannot save a human from a creature of the night. I, however, can make this offer to you once. I can turn you into something else. Once you come to my side, I can save you. I can remove you from these woods. I cannot guarantee your humanity, though. You may end up as something far worse than the creature that has trapped you here. Ellie stared at me so intensely with his red eyes. It felt like the forest was closing in on me, waiting to hear my answer. I could either become a creature after suffering through an endless amount of time, or take him up on his offer and become something else, or take a huge risk. No thank you, I said with a small smile, and to my surprise, Ellie smiled back. A small one, but still the smile. I knew that he wasn't going to offer to turn me again, but I also knew that Ellie was here for a reason, and maybe that reason would get me out of this mess. It's best for you to stay silent as I take care of why I came here. I cannot promise your life. I need to summon the creature who made this loop and speak with it. It may eat you, Ellie said as he stood up. I watched him as he walked to the middle of the trail. He stood waiting for me to nod and give him a small wave, telling him I was ready to maybe die in the next few minutes. Not much else I could do about it. He gave me a nod back, and then stomped down hard on the dirt-packed ground. I thought that I heard some sort of hollow echo, and the faintest sliver of light coming from him when he stomped. My body sensed the creature before I saw it. Every hair in the back of my neck stood on end and my hands started to shake. I had never been so scared in my life. I would honestly rather be thrown from a tree a hundred times than by sitting on the trail when the creature showed itself. It was an enormous black mass that flickered through the trees like a ghost. Its white glowing eyes and clawed black hands looked solid enough though, 
Wrapping one hand around a tree, it looked so big that it could easily rip that tree from the roots. Even though it was massive, its voice was barely a whisper. It was right in front of us and yet I could barely get a good look at it. It was like my eyes refused to focus on the thing and I was glad for that. What creature has wandered into my forest? It reached out a large claw towards Ellie who stood firm. Even in my state, I wanted to run out and protect him. The claw stopped right in front of his face when Ellie started to speak. You have created for too many children. Your limit was two. You are taking too many humans to feed them, and I suspect you took this other human to create a new. Ellie's strong words were cut off by a rasping laugh from the woods that made my skin crawl. This forest is mine. I can make as many children as I like. Now be gone. The massive claw came down to crush poor little Ellie, and I shot to my feet. But I was far too slow. But my concern was not needed. The moment that the ghastly claw came down, it exploded into a silver mist. The creature let out a shriek of pain and darted further back into the woods, nursing its wound. Ellie had not moved and his back was turned to me, but I could feel he was very angry. You cannot be. The monster hissed with a voice full of hate. The Silver King is dead. I can never die, and you have insulted me beyond going past your child limit. As a punishment, you must kill the most recent ones you have created. You must also break the loose of the humans that you have trapped. Humans that are most suited to be returned to their world adjusted to live peacefully. You'll go hungry for a while, but be thankful for your life. The monster hissed more and then darted back and forth between the trees considering what to do. It clearly wanted to kill Ellie, but it couldn't. I didn't believe that Ellie, the small child before me, was a scarier monster than the dark thing in the woods. But the proof was the thing not attacking. With more pacing and hateful hissing, it agreed. Oh, thank you, my dear Silver King, for sparing my life this night. I shall never forget it. Never. I had never heard such pure hate before. It made me feel sick just listening to that dreadful voice that I had no idea how Ellie stood so still with them and directed towards them. He was a tough kid, it seemed. I expected something special to happen, but I just blinked and everything returned to normal. It was dark, meaning the sun had finally set. Ellie stood in the same spot, the monster in the woods had now gone. I checked my phone, finding it working, but I didn't use it to call for help. I knew that I was safe to walk to the end of the trail and out of the woods. Ellie looked at me with a hard-to-read look on his face. It lightened when I offered my hand to him so we could continue the way that we had started. Even in the dark, I saw his face flush a little. He was a big important figure among very scary creatures. I don't think he often was treated like a child that he was, and he appreciated the gesture. I wish that I had spoken to him on our walk. I didn't know what to say after everything that I had seen. I was going through ideas in my head, 
when I saw something else on the trail in front of us. My throat closed and I felt tears come to my eyes. The missing children stood alone, holding hands and looking very scared. I let go of Ellie's hand to run over to the poor lost kids. I checked them over, finding them to be safe and perfectly fine. But when I looked back, Ellie was gone. I was a bit suspicious bringing two of the missing kids out of the woods. Two kids that should have been dead and looked the same as they did when they had gone missing. But I had a solid alibi when they had been on the trails. One was me on camera buying gasoline, and the other was me with ten other volunteers when the little one had gone missing. Some people thought that I was working with the ones who had taken them, but with no proof, the matter dropped. No one could explain what happened and I was not offering my strange tale. The kids said that they had just been stuck in one spot for a long time and they didn't get hungry. Since they were so young, the police didn't know what to make of it. The case eventually came to a standstill, but most people were just happy the kids were found. Since then, I've wondered about Ellie. I can't help but think how he's doing out there and if he's safe. Of course he's safe. He seems like kind of a big deal. But I can't help myself. I've been looking, trying to find any mention of him, but so far, nothing. If you run into him out there, please trust him and treat him nicely. He has a tough job. And please tell him that Hugh says hello and wants to know that he's doing alright. I used to work as a clinical hypnotist. I still have nightmares about my latest patient. Written by Mike Jesus. When she walks in, I start to shiver. Her fragile hands peek out of her coat like bones nestled in cloth. The moment our eyes meet, she starts to pick at her nails. Please sit. She sits in the chair directly opposite, but does her best to look away from me. Her sunken eyes drift across my office, searching for something comforting to look at that isn't me. It doesn't take an empath to figure out that she's anxious, but beneath her discomfort, there is something else. I am not the first therapist she has seen. She doesn't think I can help her. Would you like to tell me what brings you here today? There is a pamphlet on my desk. A brain-dead treatise of some janitor-based medication scheme I was handed on my way to work. The girl ignores my question and instead stares at the smiling janitor on the flyer. Maria... Would you like to tell me what brings you here today? She starts picking at her fingernails with greater fervor, as if there was something hiding beneath her skin that she could unearth to get out of my office. Our eyes finally meet for more than a glance. My mother didn't tell you. We spoke, yes. But it would be best if you described it to me, in your own words, what brings you here today. My mother, she made me go. Her eyes drift back to the pamphlet, 
even though the text is upside down as she attempts to read it. I gently slide the paper into my desk drawer, hoping that she'll let me in. She doesn't. Her attention quickly shifts to the pigeons outside. We are alone in the office, but it feels crowded. Maria, can I get you something to drink? A tea, some water? No, thank you. I am not the first therapist she has seen. She doesn't think that I can help her. I can. Or maybe something to eat. There is a terrific vending machine in the hall. This gets her attention. Maria, would you like to tell me what brings you here today? I can't eat. Would you like to elaborate on that? She sighs. For a moment, her fingers slow down. Yet, as she speaks, they pick up their pace once more. I'm constantly tired, constantly cold. I have no appetite for food and nothing helps. Nothing helps. My mother keeps on sending me to these places, but nothing helps. You have attended a hypnosis session before, yes? Yeah. Her mother told me who she sent her to. Novak. The man is a melancholic drunk who only keeps his office open to finance his drinking. I would be surprised if I ever met anyone who benefited from his therapeutic work. How did you find your work with Dr. Novak? Was there no improvement in your appetite at all? Nothing works. For how long have you not been able to eat? Long. Her mother blamed it on her friends. A bunch of children stopped eating in the village where Maria lived. It was as if all the kids had decided to starve themselves overnight. Her mother hoped that moving to the city would make her child eat again. She hoped that Maria getting away from the crowd of her skinny cohorts would help her gain some weight. It didn't. Do you have any guesses as to why you have this problem, Maria? Her mouth opens, but she doesn't speak. Floating in the recesses of her mind, the truth lingers, yet it cannot be put into words. A part of her knows why she starves herself, but that part is locked away from the world and the dark water of her subconscious. Novak could never reach that part. I know I can. Your mother suggested that maybe it was peer pressure from your friends, but I don't think that is true. You don't? I don't. Her tired eyes light up. As bizarre as the idea that someone would go on a purely liquid diet to impress their friends is, my rejection of the notion makes her smile. I am not the first therapist you have seen. There has to be some doubt in your mind as to whether people like me can help. I assure you I can. I can help you, but you need to trust me, Maria. Her exhausted eyes drifted back to my desk, searching for the pamphlet with the cheery janitor. They do not find it. What are you going to do? You are familiar with the concept of hypnosis from your work with Dr. Novak, yes? Well, we will be doing something similar. I will give you some instructions to help you relax and if you follow my instructions... We should be able to get to an answer to your eating problems once and for all.
Nothing scary, just some relaxation techniques to loosen up your mind, to get some answers to what's really bothering you. To make this work though, to be able to help you, I need you to trust me, Maria. Her fingers continue to claw at her skin, but her bony face relaxes. Okay. Good. Now, Maria, could I ask you to open your eyes as wide as possible? What? Just try to open your eyes as wide as possible. I know it sounds silly, but just give it a try. Open them as wide as you can. Now, focus in on the way your face feels, the strain around your eyes. It's not comfortable, is it? You could very easily imagine the opposite of that sensation. Close your eyes and feel the opposite of that sensation. With her eyes bulging, the girl's skeletal face was the stuff of horror. But with her eyes closed, she looked almost peaceful, like a malnourished baby taking an afternoon nap. Her fingers stopped twitching, yet her breathing was still shallow. We are alone in the office, but it feels like I am performing for an audience. I want you to take a deep breath. Feel that relaxation around your eyes. Feel it slowly spread out through your body with every slow breath you take. You could open your eyes if you needed to, but let them relax. Hold on to that relaxation. While you hold on to that relaxation, your eyes can't open. You can't let go of that relaxation at any moment. You can get back control whenever you want, but hold on to it. Hold on to that relaxation around your eyes and feel that calmness flow through the rest of your body. The room calms. There is still a shiver lingering in my spine, but I no longer feel the need to dig my fingers into my palm. I am not the first therapist she has seen, and chances are I won't be the last, but I can help. Good. Your body is relaxed. With each breath you take, you can feel that relaxation go deeper and deeper. Now, imagine that relaxation turned inwards. Relax your mind. Your body is holding on to that deep feeling of relaxation, but let your mind hold on to it too. In a moment, I will ask you to count backwards from 100. As you count, the numbers they will fade away and disappear from your head. With each number, you'll feel the physical relaxation of your body wash through your mind. The numbers will drop away as you count. They will disappear, so that after just a couple numbers, the number will be totally gone. I want you to start counting back from 100 now. 100. Now push the numbers out of your head. 99. Watch how the numbers disappear. Feel how relaxed your mind is becoming. 98. Her head droops to the side. It doesn't take an empath to see that she's relaxed, but I can still feel some resistance. We are alone in my office, but something else lingers in the air. Ninety. Are all the numbers gone? Ever so gently, she nods. Good, now forget about the numbers. Just go deeper and deeper into that feeling of relaxation. Good, Maria. Do you remember the day your problem started? 
Ever so gently, she nods again. Can you tell me about that day? Her thin lips part, but she doesn't speak. Her fingers start to twitch. That's okay, Maria. Hold on to that relaxation. We don't have to talk about that yet. She wants to be helped. She trusts me. Yet, there's a part of her that is not ready to face the truth just yet. Latching onto the depths of her subconscious, there are memories that refuse to be seen in the light of day. With each breath, you feel yourself going deeper and deeper. Let the calmness in your body and mind guide your breath. Relax and imagine you are in an elevator. It's the 20th floor and the numbers are going down. With each number that passes you, you feel a new wave of relief and calmness wash through your body. You grow twice as relaxed with each number I count. 19. The numbers flicker on the screen. They drop away. You go deeper and deeper into the pool of relaxation and the numbers become irrelevant. 18. Her fingers cease to twitch. She breathes deep and low. I know I can help. Yet, just as I'm about to ask her about the day her problems with food begun, she startles me. The girl starts to hum a cheery song. Her head is still drooped at the side. She is still deep in a somnambolic state, yet she hums a cheery song. I feel with her. I share the trance with her. Yet on the fringes of my mind, I am beyond perplexed. Humming in her state is deeply irregular. The song is cheery in nature, as if it were the music coming from an ice cream truck, yet it's cut short in its repetition. There are notes missing. Something within her is stopping her from finishing the memory. What's that song, Maria? I... Her mouth opens, but she cannot speak. I ask about the day that her problem started, yet I am left with silence once more. That's okay, Maria. Hold on to the relaxation you felt before. Imagine you are back in the elevator on the 20th floor. Watch the numbers count down. Feel the relaxation in your body and mind double with each passing number. 19. I count. She begins to hum once more. I do not ask about the song. Instead, I ask about the day her problem started. Once again, she cannot speak. I take her back to the 20th floor. I count again and I ask again. And once more, I am met with silence. I'm not sure if the frustration I feel in my chest is hers or mine, but I feel it regardless. I try again, but I fail once more. I am unable to help. The shame of failure washes over me, and I fear she can feel it too. I almost give up. I almost consign myself to the same class of therapist as Novak. But then a desperate thought seizes me. I think of the pamphlet at my desk. Hold on to that relaxation. Enjoy that feeling of calmness. You are... You are a janitor and your mind is one long hallway. Her eyebrows twitch gently. Her index finger brushes against the tip of her thumb. I haven't lost your trust yet, but I am close. You are a janitor and your mind is one long hallway of spotless tile. 
Yet on that tile there's dirt. Dirt of worry, dirt of anxiety, dirt of the past. It does not matter right now. You can clean it away. You are a janitor. Grab your mop and move it back and forth. Back and forth. Back. Her breath moves along with the mop. She calms once more, sinking into a deeper state of relaxation than before. I marvel at how a pamphlet freely given out in the subway has managed to be more effective than clinical techniques. But I force that thought out of my mind. She starts to hum once more. What's that song, Maria? The truck. I hear the music every night. What truck, Maria? Mr. Mobino's ice cream truck. All the children in the village loved him. He was always nice and smiling, but... One day he changed. One day he changed and wasn't nice anymore. That's when my problem started. Do you want me to tell me about that day, Maria? The pigeons fly off the windowsill outside. Another chill travels up my spine. We are alone in the room, but it doesn't feel that way. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep and something was telling me to go outside. And so I did. It was dark, but I could see I wasn't alone. The other kids were outside as well. Everyone was standing there as if they were waiting for something. All of the kids from the village were outside. And then... She starts to hum the song again. The tune haunts me. The idea of standing outside in the middle of the night, confused by the motivations of my own body, haunts me even more. Mr. Mobino's truck showed up, but it was different. It was bad. I wanted to run away, but I couldn't. I wanted to run away, but instead, I followed the truck. Everyone did. We all followed the truck to the edge of the village. A tear slides down her cheek. My eyes water. Whatever led her away from her home that night is inside of the office with us. I want to help her, but something feels wrong. I ignore my instincts. What happened at the edge of the village, Maria? Mr. Mobino opened the ice cream truck, but there was no ice cream. There were... there were hearts. Inside of the freezer, there were hearts. Still beating, bloody hearts. Her eyes bolt open. The girl stares at me in utter shock. It doesn't take an empath to figure out she is re-experiencing that horrible moment from her past. But I am there with her. I feel the grass at my bare feet. An air of undulterated evil flows like puffs of steam from the freezer of the truck. He shoved the sticks into the hearts and gave them to us. We had no choice. We had to. I feel the flesh in my mouth. There's something else in the room with us and it has demands. It claws at my stomach. It stretches its pulsing body through my throat. The girl didn't end up on a liquid dye because of her friends. She ended up the way she is because of that thing. It won't let her eat anything else. I feel a beating heart between my clenched teeth. 
My horror tears me away from the room, yet I can see her face calm. When I woke up in the morning, I tried telling my parents. I tried talking about Mr. Mobino and my friends, but uh, I couldn't. Whenever I tried talking about that night, the words would never come. Until, until now. My spit tastes like iron. She's smiling. The specter of the memory no longer seems to drain her. Yet beneath her voice, I hear a steadily growing heartbeat. I clear my throat. I try to get a control of the situation. But how do you feel speaking about it now? I... Her eyes drift again. She looks past the door to the hallway. Can I go get something from the snack machine? Sure. She leaves the room, but I am not alone. I will never be alone again. Whatever demon masquerading as a repressed memory that I have exercised out of her will stay with me forever. Its claws are sunken deep into my stomach. My spit tastes of iron. The heart still beats in my mouth. Any semblance of joy leaves me. I feel desperately tired. My body is fragile, as if it was made of nothing but skin and bone. The idea of food, of lunch, or of ever eating again is repugnant. She dashes into the office with chocolate around her lips. She's beaming. I, I, can I call my mom? Sweat rolls down my back as I wake up in the middle of the night. The hypnosis session with Maria is carved into my mind. Everything prior to that afternoon feels like a distant memory of someone I can't empathize with. All I feel now is weakness and a razor-specific craving. Any attempt at eating solid food after the session was impossible, as were any attempts at practicing my craft. It didn't take me long to end up on a liquid diet. It didn't take me long to fall into despair. I hear the music in the night. I hear the music in the night and I run out barefoot into the street, hoping that I will see that truck, praying for a respite from my craving. Mr. Mobino never shows up. The night air carries the incomplete tune of his truck, yet it is nothing but a cruel jest. My spit tastes of blood. The heart still beats in my mouth and a hunger which I cannot comprehend flows through my veins. Once I am sure the ice cream truck is not coming, I go back inside of my apartment. My professional pride has prevented me from getting help, but even the grandest of boulders turns to sand when chipped away at for long enough. I am nothing but skin and bone. All of my food is powdered and mixed with water. I refuse to live life this way. The number for Dr. Novak's practice isn't hard to find. I pick up my phone. Stay inside when it rains. The Rain Man is coming. Written by Jaguars147. Now, I'll start this off by saying how much my dog and I admittedly hate the rain. My dog will not go outside if it is remotely raining, even a slight drizzle. She'll go as far to shy away from every puddle she sees on our nightly walk. This is a pretty common reaction in dogs, 
considering they are domesticated and spoiled for the most part, my dog included. Now, to get on with the explanation of whatever I just experienced with my dog. I love taking my dog out for walks. However, I cannot take her out during the daytime, considering that she'll bark at every single squirrel that she sees, every jogger or biker, or even just a simple passerby. I have to take her out when it is pitch blackout so she cannot see and ultimately try to chase the tiny animals that even I can't see. It just saves a lot of shoulder pain for me when it comes down to it, and I also like nighttime walks better since they are more peaceful and quiet. So, anyways, last night, like every night, I took my dog out at around 8pm when the sun was finally tucked away and the moon illuminated the night sky to the perfect degree. The sky was clear, millions of stars above me on a beautifully clear night. I strapped her leash on and headed out the door. I put on my headphones to play some music so I could escape for a little while, while my lovely dog got her exercise for the night. I was expecting a normal walk, as I usually do, how I would come to realize this was not a normal walk. It started with a huge gust of wind. I usually take my dog around a big school next to my house, since it has a lot of grass for my dog to do her business. And it's fun to reminisce of the fun times I had in elementary school, since this was where I went when I was younger. Anyways, the gust of wind. This was completely out of nowhere, and it took me back a little bit. After I had regained my balance, I looked at my dog and she looked up at me, with her tail between her legs and her eyes wide, considering she is a pretty skittish dog. But she knew something was wrong. Maybe not wrong, but off. She knew something was off. I gave her a pat on the head and told her, uh, don't worry, girl, it's just some wind. You're tougher than some wind. As if she could understand what I was saying. I walked around the first corner of the school to reveal the big playground all the kids would play on at recess. I remember the times that I used to have on here. Scared to talk to girls. Worried about my little car being put in the yellow section for not behaving in class. The times that I fell out here, scraping my knee and crying because, in those moments, that felt like the worst pain life had to give. I only wish that were true. Anyways, as I left reality remembering all these memories, I was completely taken aback by the instantaneous and mood-killing downpouring rain that struck me and my dog. This was completely out of the ordinary since the weather didn't predict this, and the sky was perfectly clear, and my instincts just told me to start running. As I was running, I could see my dog's ears perked back and tail curling between her legs again. She was horrified. I decided to go under an outing that had blocked the rain, with the addition of a small bench placed under the roof presumably where parents would sit when they're waiting to pick up their kids from school. 
As I sat there, hearing the rain pound on the street in front of us, my dog looked up at me and looked almost thankful to get out of that horrible, out-of-nowhere rain. I patted her, soaking wet head and said, Don't worry, the rain should be over soon. We can just wait here until it's done. Enjoy the scenery. The beautiful scenery of two dumpsters and a soaking wet roll of toilet paper in front of us. How beautiful. I thought to myself sarcastically, after about two minutes of rain and sitting on the bench, I felt a very cold but not uncomfortably cold feeling wash over me. I was a little confused as to why I felt this, but I was even more shocked to find my dog sniffing the feet of a very frail old man in front of us, standing in the pouring rain. I nearly fell off the bench in horror as I did not expect to see anyone this close to me in the middle of a rainstorm. After I came to, I yelled out, Sir, come under here. It's pouring. You're getting soaked. As he came under the outing, away from the rain, I noticed something weird. Well, two things actually. My dog was sitting down, tail wagging, licking this man's leg. Something she would never do to a stranger. And two, the man who just came from the pouring rain... He was bone dry, not a single drop of wetness on him. It was like he just came from a desert. Completely out of words, but hundreds of questions, I asked him what the heck he was doing out here in the rain. He responded with nothing, not even a head nod, nothing. I looked closely at him and saw that his skin was, I'm not sure how to say this, illuminated but also pale and cracked all over his body, like he was in a shell that was starting to deteriorate. After realizing I was staring, I looked back up and away from the man and once again ahead of me at the beautiful dumpsters. This time, I could feel the man's eyes peering at me. Before I could look at him, I heard him say, Beautiful, isn't it? I looked at him with crazy eyes, saying, Yeah, trash is always fascinating, I said sarcastically. Not the trash, Luke. Planet Earth. Memories. The way you humans associate small things like playground equipment with the memories of your past. The way you get sentimental about a slide, because it's where you first saw your fourth grade crush. It's all beautiful. Where I come from, we don't have beauty. We have fire, torture, pain, suffering. I looked at the man's illuminating skin and for the first time, we met eyes. And I mean really met eyes. Once he looked in my eyes, I felt a lifetime's worth of emotions flood my body. I was taken back to how I felt at my dad's funeral last year. I was taken back to the memory of when I first laid eyes on my amazing dog. I was taken to my high school graduation, to my breakup last month. After I came to, I reacted with tears. Tears filling up my eyes. I felt a wave of sadness come over me. I asked him, what are you just done to me? And I asked him, who are you? 
I was finally broken free from his glare, and when I came to again, he had my dog in his arms, gently petting her to sleep. She was completely dry. Not like she was dried off with a towel and was still damp, but like she never got touched by an ounce of rain. I asked him my first question that will finally be met with a real answer. What are you? He took a second to answer me, but he finally replied to me with this. What am I, Luke? That's a little complicated. Let's just say I am a rejected demon. There is a whole other world out there, Luke. A world that humans argue about constantly. It's out there. However, demons are expected to inflict pain upon the world, hurt people, shade the beauties of life from the people who will allow us to, ruin people's lives, relationships, jobs, you name it. We are the reason for the world's suffering and sadness. Well, not all of us. Some of us, and by some of us, I mean myself are spawned into this world a little different. So different that we can't bring ourselves to dig ourselves into someone's life and ruin it from the inside out, per se. For some reason, I have a very different view of the world. I've been this way for almost 5,000 years now, after I was banished from the underworld. I roamed the earth for a few thousand years, I knew my time wasn't forever, considering banishing someone from hell means stripping them of their immortal abilities. So, I started a journey, if you will. I wanted to try and do the opposite of what a demon is meant to do. So far, no one's been even able to bat an eye at me, let alone see me. Until recently, I met you. I met you a year ago, Luke, at your dad's funeral. I came up and shook your hand, but I didn't say anything to you. I might have looked a lot different then, but you remember the feeling you got after you shook my hand. I could feel your sadness, Luke, and I knew there was something I could do for you. I can talk to people, Luke, and not just regular people. People who have surpassed this world and moved on to the next one. I can bring them back for a very brief period of time. I want to give you something I've wanted to give you ever since I shook your hand. I just haven't had the right time to do it. Can I do this for you, Luke? Can I give you one last conversation with your father? It's very forward, I know, but... I would love for you to have this. I looked at the man, with tears streaming down my face. I couldn't speak. There was nothing I could have said in this moment, so all I did was shake my head yes, and palm my head into my hands and cry even more. I felt a hand touch my shoulder and say, Very well. Thank you, Luke. You won't be seeing me anymore, but... I want you to have this moment because I was never able to do anything good in my entire life, until now. As I lifted my head from my hands, I looked over at my dog, 
was in the lap of my father. My dad looked at me, smiling with tears in his eyes, a glowing bright blue around him and what looked like to be a gold halo above his head. I looked him in the eyes. Dad, I whispered out. May there, chief. He responded with my nickname that he had given me as a child. I reached over and gave him the most aggressive hug I ever have given anybody, and I cried into his shoulder. The moment my tears came out, I was met with contentment. He lifted my head, and he looked me in the eyes and said, I love you, Luke. Everything will be okay. You will be okay. I've been watching over you, Luke, ever since I left here. And I gotta say, how proud I am of you for taking after mom and getting through the loss. Now, I can't stay long, Chief, but I need you to know that I am doing well. And I never will truly leave you, Luke. I'll always be watching over you. And don't hesitate to talk to me. I'll always be listening to anything you ever, ever have to say to me. I love you so much. Till we meet again soon. As I said, I love you too. In the most content and happy mood I've been in the last year. He was gone. And so was the old man. I was left with my dog sleeping on the bench, my eyes filling back up with tears, but tears of joy this time, and looking out at the dumpsters that now looked incredibly beautiful as the rain came to a halt and the night sky cleared up again. I gently woke my dog up, helped her off the bench, and finished the rest of my walk. I've never been one to believe anything supernatural, but this night will forever be the most special night of my life. I'm not entirely sure how much of it was real, but the way it felt, it was all too real. Demons are out there, and they are a tough battle. If you look past the demons though, something as simple as trash could be beautiful. I'm eternally grateful for my experience, and I'm using it as a reminder to enjoy every waking moment on this earth. Until next time. My wife and kids won't come up from the basement. It's been three days. Written by Kyle Harrison. Let me cut to the chase and just catch you up on what's happened so far. This house is freaking haunted. I don't know how the heck anyone has managed to sleep at night here and call themselves a human being. We moved in just last Monday and I knew something was up. I've always had a sixth sense about this sort of thing. 
One time, my wife and I spent an anniversary at a hotel, and we had to change rooms four times because I felt something was wrong with each suite that we stayed in. And it turned out that I was right. Either a murder or some weird scandal had happened in each one of them. And this property was no different but didn't really have a choice in the matter. I won't go into too many details, but our finances have been very tight lately, so this was all that we could afford. Anyway, back to the ghost thing. Our youngest, Callie, is the one that first had an encounter. That was Wednesday. She said that someone was in her attic, but we told her that there is no attic. Well, I hear someone walk around to my ceiling then, she snapped. I decided to take her word for it and check. And wouldn't you know it, there was some residue from a shoe on the ceiling. How the heck it got there, I don't know, but I was convinced that something was wrong. Especially because of what happened next. My children had nightmares about the basement before it was unlocked. When we got to the property, we were told there was a wine cellar. Nothing out of the ordinary. And actually, it sounded like something that we had always wanted. There was a lock on the door which the real estate agent admitted they didn't have a key for. I'm sure if you use something strong, you can get it open though. Just no one has ever really had much use for the space down there, they said. I knew something was off and I could feel it. My skin was crawling as I looked down toward the basement door. There were about four steps that jutted downward and that ended abruptly in a short hovel. The door looked old, probably older than the house itself. It did not look pleasant or friendly. It looked like it was meant to stay locked. My wife was immediately intrigued by it though. I bet there is some great Sangio or Syrah down there. I can borrow my dad's drill and get that open in no time, she told me. I had a bad feeling, especially when both Callie and Adrian had dreams about the basement. Adrian was first. He had always had an avid imagination. After Callie had reported that she was sure people were walking in the ceiling, he couldn't sleep and he came to bed with us. That resulted in a night where no one got any rest because he kept waking up screaming. What has gotten into you? I asked him. I keep hearing something under the floor. It's getting into my skin. He would tell me frantically. He said that there was something that was growing under the house. In one dream, it was a weed. The next, it was an octopus. Either way, it was unsettling. He had never had strange dreams like this before. But still, my wife was now even more curious because of the nightmares. If there is something about the basement, I want to know what it is, she decided. Audrey had always been a bit stubborn. I told her to leave it alone. My hope was that maybe if we ignored the otherworldly presence in our house, it would get tired and move on. That didn't happen. Something in the basement doesn't want us to leave. It was Saturday when Audrey finally found the way to open the door. I didn't even know that she had gotten the drill. I had to go to work that day and by the time that I had gotten home, she was already in the basement. I remember walking in and announcing to the kids that I was home. A normal Saturday afternoon would mean that they were either playing outside or on their Xbox. 
but this time, the house was empty and quiet. I immediately felt the hair on the back of my neck stand up, as my first thought went to the basement. Sure enough, I saw that the door was slightly ajar, but I couldn't see anything beyond the fourth step. It seemed like it plunged straight into darkness. I was just about to walk down there and see if she was maybe sorting through whatever might be below when I had second thoughts. That sense of foreboding overwhelmed my body, and instead, I decided to call their cell phone. I heard it ringing below my feet, and then I heard Adrian make a giggle from the stairs and I turned toward the basement door and called out to them. Hey, don't scare me like that, I shouted. No response. It made me uneasy. I tried to call again, and it rang, and still, she didn't respond. Adrian, tell your mom to come up, and you too. Where is Callie? I asked. We're all down here, he responded. Something in his voice was off. It was chilling. Okay, well, are you coming up then? I asked. No. A short and succinct answer. Something was wrong. Adrian, listen, I need you to come upstairs. Why don't you come downstairs, father? He asked. That didn't sound like my son at all. I looked down into the stairwell and saw two glowing orbs which I assume were his eyes. I couldn't see his pupils, just those white circles. I tried my best to not be frightened as I spoke. How long have you been down there? I asked. Long enough, he responded. I took a tentative step toward him. You really need to come up now, all of you. It's not safe down there. He smiled and I could see his teeth. It made the rest of his shadowy face look inhuman. Are you sure it's safe up there? He whispered. I didn't take any more steps toward him. I knew this was wrong. I felt cold talking to him, like it was just an empty void. That was Saturday, and I waited an hour before I was sure that they weren't coming back up. And then I tried again and told them to come up, and got the same response except this time from my daughter. Daddy, I like it down here. You will too, she said in a hum. I hardly slept that night because I was so worried about my family. I didn't know who to call or what to do. It's not like the police were going to come over for something like this. I kept hearing scratching on the floor and it would keep me awake. I've never felt so watched as I stayed in bed, like there were eyes in the floor below. And then Sunday came and I went to work, trying desperately to ignore the sense of dread building inside of me. I would get text messages from my wife every so often. When are you coming home? The kids miss you. I miss you too, of course. We need to be a family together. We have to stay together as a family. That prompted me to respond. Then stop this foolishness and come upstairs. It's you who is being the fool here, John. I decided to stop reading the text messages after that. When I got home, the house was quiet again, and I didn't even go near the stairs. I grabbed some sleeping meds and locked myself in my bedroom, 
hoping that the night would pass quickly. Now it's Tuesday and things have progressed worse. A lot worse. We're hungry, Daddy. Can you please come feed us? Callie whispered to me as I passed these stairs this morning. I called a few people in the area, spiritual leaders and such, hoping maybe they could give advice. As you might imagine, no one wanted to talk to me. They thought I was crazy. Maybe I am. I didn't think it would be possible for something so simple to be so sinister, but it is. And I'm terrified because I don't want anything harmful to happen to my family. Why don't you come up and eat, baby? I asked my girl. We can't. It won't let us leave. As if I didn't already have confirmation that something was happening down there, but the scent shivers across my spine. And you can't leave either, my wife added. I saw all three of them there, three pairs of eyes in the darkness staring up at me. Just come down here, Audrey insisted. I took a step toward them, my heart racing. Something was compelling me to go deeper. Take one more step. Just do it, John. Just do it. And then I heard this low growl as I had reached for the door. It was like the whole house settling and preparing to swallow me whole. I slammed the door and caught my breath, refusing to go a step further. For a moment, there was silence. And then I heard a soft noise on the other side of the door. A tapping. I ignored it at first, but it continued. I bent my lip and whispered, Who's there? There was a giggle mixed with that hellish growl. Daddy, it's me. Please open the door. Pretty please. I really wanted to just break down and cry after what happened yesterday because I was about 90% sure that my family was gone. They went into the dark basement below and they haven't refused to come back upstairs since Saturday. I've tried everything to see what is down there, flashlights, lanterns, but I haven't gone past the door. I can sense an evil there, and I know that it's taken them. In fact, I was so upset that I did something I probably shouldn't have, but in a way, it's gotten the ball rolling toward some answers. Full disclosure, some alcohol was involved in the decision making. After a few drinks, I called the one person I thought might have answers to all this mess, the real estate agent. Truth be told, I felt ashamed that I didn't think of it sooner. But another reason I wanted to call is because my patience was gone. I demanded an answer when she finally answered the phone. John, John, you need to slow down. You are making sense. She stuttered. Something in her voice told me that she freaking knew and I was too drunk to care about her to let it slide. You need to get over here and explain the heck I need to do to help my family, I demanded. All right, all right. I'll be there in a couple of hours. I sat at the kitchen table, fidgety and afraid. Every so often, I would hear the pitter-patter of bare feet below me, the sound of my children supposedly playing in the basement. Every time that I heard them laugh or giggle, I nearly lost it. In fact, right before the agent came, I was in a really drunken stupor and I started to yell down at the basement, demanding it to respond. 
I don't know what you want from me, but you need to let my family go. We haven't done anything to you. Do you hear me? I screamed. Of course, the basement didn't respond. It was unnaturally quiet, in fact. And that just made me even more upset. I stumbled down the steps to the door and slammed my fist against it. What do you want? I shouted louder. This time, I heard a low scratching noise, and I nearly jolted from the step, as I saw some strange lettering burning into the door from the other side. It took a moment for the word to form, singed into the old wood permanently, like a scar as it made me literally gasp for air. And then the doorbell rang. The real estate agent was there. I fumbled back upstairs and went to the front door, glaring at her. About freaking time, I responded as she came in. John, you've been drinking. What the heck is going on? Where's your wife? She asked nervously. That's exactly what I've been trying to tell you. They've been in the basement and now they won't come up, I explained. She walked over to the stairs and looked down at the door, commenting. I see that you managed to take the lock off. So, what was down there anyway? I haven't gone down, I admitted. She gave me a puzzled look. What is that on the door? She walked toward it to get a good look and then asked me, John, did you do this? No, uh, how could I? I asked. She tried the handle, but it didn't budge. The door was stuck shut. And you're telling me that Audrey and the kids are down there. How long have they been down there? She asked as she giggled the handle with no log. I fidgeted with my feet, feeling ashamed and embarrassed and frightened all at once. About four days now. Her eyes widened in alarm as she pulled out her phone and announced, I'm calling the cops, John. This is unacceptable. It's negligence. You should have called the fire department by now. How the heck are they getting food and resources down there? She pushed me aside and walked back to the kitchen as she dialed at 911. And then I heard this low rumble below our feet and a noise from one of the bedrooms. What was that? The real estate agent asked. And then, as she was talking to the operator, a shadow appeared from the doorway and I felt immediately cold and empty inside. Standing there in the hallway was my wife, or at least something that looked exactly like my wife. Oh, thank God, the agent said and added to the operator that it was a false alarm. Is everything all right? Audrey asked softly. I was at a loss for words, watching as my wife walked into the kitchen and stood alongside the sink. The agent slid her phone back into her pocket and gave me the stink eye. It would seem that your husband here had the idea that you and your children were in danger. Honestly, I'm hoping all of this was a great prank at my expense, she commented dryly. Audrey laughed. It didn't sound like her laugh. I kept still as the agent walked over to her and added, After this little scare you gave me, I think I deserve a drink. You did say you got wine from the cellar, correct? I can get you something, Audrey answered, walking to the fridge. So, what is it that my husband told you was wrong? She asked casually. You, you and the kids were locked downstairs, 
or something in the basement. Audrey, I heard you down there, I said softly. She poured the wine and smiled at me. It was not the friendly look that I knew from her. Well, I'm clearly not in the basement, how am I? And you believe that nonsense? She asked the agent, passing her the wine. She sipped it and chuckled softly. Well, to be honest, I've heard a few rumors about this property. It's been somewhat difficult to sell. So, the story sounded outlandish, but I guess I let my imagination get the best of me. Rumors, I said, keeping an eye on Audrey. She was watching the agent the way a lion stalks their prey. Where are the children anyway? Our guest asked. Excuse me, Audrey said, seeming surprised by the question. I really should be going, but before I do, can I at least confirm the children are right? The agent said. Oh yes, yes of course, Audrey said, fumbling for something. I saw it just as her fingers curled around the handle, and I made a noise. Watch out! But it was too late. She twisted the knife and slammed it straight into the agent's face. The woman screamed, dropping the wine glass and immediately scrambled to defend herself. But Audrey was faster. She grabbed the woman's hair and slammed her into the sink, forcing her under as she started the water. Audrey, Audrey, you're going to suffocate her. I screamed as I tried to pull her off. She pushed me away and then turned on the garbage disposal, a grinding noise filling the air. As I heard the woman scream louder and blood began to splatter out in every direction. My wife didn't even blink as she kept the woman's face down until her body had gone limp. Finally, when she was sure that the real estate agent was dead, she lifted her from the garbage disposal and tossed her to the floor. I did my best to not look at her mangled face. And then she dragged the body toward the basement stairs. Audrey, Audrey, talk to me. What the heck are you doing? Talk to me. I said, trying to stop her. She made a hissing noise and pushed me away from the stairs. As she walked down and pushed the door open to the sheer darkness below. I tried again to stop her. And she scratched me across the face. Slamming me against the wall as she dragged the body down the stairs to the basement. I listened as I heard the noise of bones breaking. And growls from predators fighting over a fresh meal. It sounded so primal, so animalistic. Then, from the darkness, Audrey stepped out and closed the door, looking down at her blood-splattered clothes. What have you done? I whispered, barely able to find my voice. I was in fear of what she might do to me if I got in her way. She blinked, looking confused and surprised by my question. The children were hungry. I clenched my fist. Those, those things down there aren't our kids. I looked at her with hate and anger. And you are not my wife. She made a low hiss. That's no way to talk to me, John. And I would be careful what you think you're going to do next. Ask yourself carefully. How many people are going to get hurt because of your stubbornness? Audrey snarled. The police will come. They're going to eventually realize that that poor woman went missing. What do you want from me? She turned toward the door and opened it back before snarling. I'm not staying up here to argue. 
I'm going back to be with our family. Where you belong too, John. Don't you walk away. I screamed louder. I was shaking, convinced she would kill me in a second if she could. She turned her head and gave me a curious look. The house already told you what it needs. I suggest you start listening to it. And then she disappeared into the darkness and shut the door between us. I went to the door, struggling to get it open again, but it would not budge. I screamed in frustration as I touched the burnt letters. Crap, I'm such a wreck that I forgot to mention what the message was. More, it said. This house wants more. And I think I just gave it exactly what it needed. I won't be minting words. I believe my family is gone. I know it and you know it. We all know that they have got to be dead. But that doesn't mean whatever the heck this thing is that took them is going to win. It's been nearly five days now. I lost my family over the weekend and now I see that this house has a force of evil that I wasn't prepared for. That I don't think anyone was prepared for. But I'm going to keep fighting. My family deserves that. After my experience with Audrey, I decided to try to get the police again. A woman had just been killed in her house and she had fed the corpse to the basement. I figured if that didn't pique their interest, the sheer amount of red on the property would. I recognized that the entity I'm battling doesn't want me to seek outside help, so I probably should have anticipated that my phone wouldn't work on the property. Instead, I drove down to the police station to provide a statement. I had no idea what sort of tricks the entity would play while I was gone, but I also felt so relieved to get out. Guiltily, part of me wanted to keep driving, but no, Audrey and the kids needed me to finish this. I didn't tell them the full story, but just enough to convince them that an accident had occurred at my house and they needed to come investigate. One officer said something interesting, just as we were about to leave. What was the address again? He muttered. I told him. Huh, wasn't that the place they found that kid a few years back, Tommy? What kid? His partner asked as we walked out of the station. I can't remember. The husband was a bad guy and he kept the kid locked up in the basement for a few years though. And then afterward, the wife went insane and killed the son and the daughter. It was crazy, he said. Oh, I remember that now, the other officer said. And then the rest of the ride became weirdly quiet. I tucked that little bit of info away into my brain as we drove to my house. And I prepared for whatever the house was going to throw at me next. Something told me that this man and his family had not made it out of the house alive. And I didn't want to be next. Honestly, I thought that I was prepared for anything by this point, but the house proved me wrong again. As we got inside, I directed them to the kitchen, only to find it was completely clean from top to bottom, not a speck of blood anywhere or any body tissue. Is this some kind of sick joke, son? The second officer asked as he came back from checking the rest of the house. No, it's true. Here, let me get you the real estate agent's business card. I stammered as I fumbled through my wallet. What's in the basement? The other asked, looking down at the closed door. 
I, I don't really know, I admitted. You got the key, he asked. It isn't locked, I said. Well then, lead the way. The second officer told me. I froze. I couldn't think of a good excuse to not go down into the basement, but every bone in my body told me something horrible would await us. I would really rather not, I said nervously. And then one officer sighed and pushed me down, muttering that he didn't have time for this nonsense. And they both flanked me to prevent me from going back upstairs, and I reached for the door, hoping to God that it was locked. It opened with a slow creaking sound, and I gestured toward the darkness. I don't believe there's any electricity down here, I admitted. Where exactly is your family, sir? One officer asked as they took out their smartphone to shine a light down on the basement stairs. I could just barely make out a brick wall. It was that dark. Uh, they aren't here. The wife took my kids to visit mom upstate for the week. I lied. I really don't know why. I knew that it was a mistake for the moment I did, but it was too late. Daddy? A voice whispered it from down below, and I closed my eyes and prayed the officers didn't hear it. Of course they did. What was that? Before I knew what was happening, the two men were taking me down the stairs to the edge of the basement. We couldn't see anything down there. Even the light was hardly penetrating the shadows. But then amid the gloom, we saw my little girl, standing amid a pile of what looked like human waste. And I suddenly realized she was shackled to the wall. Holy God, one officer exclaimed, running toward her. No, it isn't safe, I shouted. Get back against the wall, the second officer snarled, pushing me away even as his partner knelt to check on Callie for injuries. I could see her mouth was still dripping with blood. That's what I was trying to tell you. They attacked that woman. I insisted, but the two cops were no longer listening to me. Are you okay, sweetie? The officer asked. That isn't my daughter, I said frantically. You better shut up before I make you regret anything else. And the second cop snarled. Daddy, I'm scared. Callie said as she cried softly. It sounded so much like my little girl, I wanted to believe. Leave her alone. A scream came from the darkness. The officer that was helping Callie jumped in surprise, turning to see Faux Audrey standing there in the gloomy basement. There was hardly enough lighting to make out her face, but I could see that portions of her skin were beginning to peel away, around her nose and eyes. Beneath it, her skin looked like porcelain, new and young and different, almost the way an insect might break out of a husk. They aren't ready, Faux Audrey said as she stepped closer. I recognized now that my initial guess was right. She looked like a new person with dark red hair and paler skin. Not the woman that I had married at all. Not even close. Ma'am, we're going to need to question you and your husband. The officer said sternly. He's not my husband, she said, confirming my fears. The house had changed her. But into what? Before the officer had a chance to move, the stranger said, They aren't my children either. Not yet. 
what is going on here? The other officer asked. I don't really care. All of you are going to come down to the station and clear this up immediately. The first man insisted. No, you can't take them. The house needs them. She snarled, blocking the stairway. Lady, if you don't move right now, I'll tase you. The second officer snapped. I watched as the stranger's eyes turned completely black. And then the entire house rumbled again. What in the world? The cop said, looking down at his feet. I watched in shock and horror as his legs became bolted to the floor, transforming into wood. He struggled to move as the strange shape-shifting magic moved up his body, and he started to scream in terror as it covered his body. Before he had a chance, he was as stiff as stone, immobile. The second man was no different, frantically running up the stairs only to have them act as quicksand and begin to swallow him alive. He turned and tried to shoot the stranger, but it didn't do any good. Whatever had emerged from my wife's body was unfazed by the attack. As soon as he was gone, she turned her attention to Callie and smiled in the most sinister way. Nothing will prevent our return, our survival, she whispered. Daddy, I want to go. Please help me, she whispered. I looked at the tears in her eyes and then looked toward the stranger, mortified as I realized that I was wrong about all of my family being gone. Kelly, daddy's going to save you, I promise. I said reaching for her hand. She belongs to the house now, John. Audrey tried to tell you, but you wouldn't listen. The woman hissed as she blocked my path to my daughter. Man, you just took two men's lives. How the heck are you going to explain that one away? This house will be torched to the ground once locals know that it's haunted. I snapped back, my voice shaking in fear and anger. The house will keep them away. It has already grown stronger. Soon, it will be able to make things right. She whispered. I want my family back. They didn't hurt you. I told the demon. Her eyes blazed with fire. But the family before you did... A price must be paid. We will walk this earth again and you will help us. Or you will never save the ones you love. The stranger told me. I realized in its old cold, calculating way. The demon that had taken my wife hostage and formed her body to suit its needs was now offering me a choice. I could harvest souls for it. To save my children. Where is Adrian? Show me my son before I make any deal, I said. She stepped aside and in the darkness, I saw his weak, frail body. He was hardly conscious. A thick layer of some kind of strange plaster was covering his skin, and he was struggling to breathe. Seeing him there made me want to scream, to cry, to kill this monster. But I knew I couldn't if I wanted to even get a chance to save my kids. I'll do it, I whispered as my lips trembled. I'll gather the souls you need, but you have to let my children go. I've run out of options. I hate this house. I'm so frustrated about everything. Today marks it being six days since my family was taken hostage by a demonic entity in the basement. After three days, I came online to discuss my problem and get some advice. I guess I really felt I was losing my mind. 
considering that after the initial incident, my wife killed our real estate agent and then two police officers were swallowed up by the house. My hope had been to make others see what is happening here, but the evil is stronger than I realized. I feel like it's manipulating me and holding me and my children hostage. I guess you could say that I'm mad, especially because I agreed to go out and bring more souls for the demon in exchange for my children's safety. Yes, Adrian and Callie are alive, for now, but the house is hungry. The stranger that emerged from my wife's husk explained to me, and I don't understand it, but this is what she said. I'm still reeling from the fact that my wife was likely gone forever, used as a shell for this new life form that is somehow able to communicate with the house. The real estate woman was a sinful body. I forced fed your children because if I don't feed them, the house will simply consume them. Audrey did that to keep them alive, John. She was doing what was necessary to keep them alive. Unlike you. I ignored the jab and said, So the house must be fed sinless and innocent souls. Is that it? Yes. And you must hurry, John. Otherwise, I can't stop the house from feeding on them. And they will be lost forever. Some part of me told me that my wife's spirit was the one also making this deal with the devil. She knew that she was doomed, but wanted to do everything in her power to save our kids. It's my duty to do the same. I left the house that morning, promising to return in only a few hours. I know some of you have suggested that I simply leave, but what good would it do? This thing would find a way to hurt others, and I would lose what little life of me I have left if I knew I willingly left my children. I've been a coward and it's time to start thinking of a way to defeat this evil. As I got further from the house, my head began to clear and I considered what I knew so far. Something had happened here before we had moved in, something that likely killed the family that had lived there. So, that must mean that there is a record of it somewhere. I managed to find the local newspaper archives downtown and requested a snoop. Thankfully, the woman at the desk didn't ask any questions. And soon, I found myself going down a proverbial rabbit hole. It took longer than I had anticipated, but I found two entries about the address. One, only two years back. Mother attacks both children and then herself, in a tragedy that rivals the original. That got me digging a little deeper, and I soon found in the other article that one of her children was apparently adopted and the son of a man that also claimed to have been attacked by spirits at another house over eight years ago. A woman adopts son of heinous criminal and shocking end to a dangerous case. The article explained that she said her husband was charged with taking the boy, but the original biological father was still in county lockup. I did a search in him next and found an interview where he was attempting to warn others about an entity that had made him attack his son years ago. There was evil there that I couldn't explain. It was compelling me to do things that I didn't want to do. The house was alive, and it took my son, and I know that it will want to feed again. You must destroy it. It made me wonder if it was even possible to destroy this evil. Where did it come from? I knew my next stop would be the county jail, to talk to this estranged father. I checked my watch, 
nervous and afraid that the demon would think I was taking too long. I needed to buy some time somehow. The only solution I could come up with was to swing by a local church and convince a pastor to stop by for a baptism. And you said it's your children that need to be baptized. The older man asked as I drove him to the house. I figured a man of God would be the closest thing to sinless that I could find. And maybe if I got lucky, he could even help defeat this evil. I drove back to the house trying to fend off any questions that the pastor had. A sense of dread overwhelming me as I got in and headed straight for the basement. There is something evil about this house, he said as he entered, and then he paused at the top of the stairs. I know this place. People have died here, he whispered. I froze and looked down, wondering if the house might attack because of the man's realizing its true intent. Your children don't need to be given the water of God, but his spirit, take me to them immediately, the pastor insisted. I couldn't even see the basement floor. We walked together and toward the wall, my mind reeling as I wondered if this man would even stand a chance against this evil. It wasn't the darkness that scared me now, but what was happening down below that sent a shiver down my spine. When I got down there, I saw to my surprise that the faux Audrey, the stranger, was sleeping. She was in a fetal position in the corner, almost like an insect going inside its shell again, and it made me wonder if I had the chance to rescue my children. Adrian was hardly moving pale as a sheet and covered in the same goop as before and Callie was actually asleep as well. Was the house working its magic on them to change them the way that it had Audrey? The demon is weakened. Some time ago, I can feel its pain, its anger. It's in the floorboards, the walls, the entire house. The pastor realized. What happened here? He whispered, not knowing the full story. Father, that doesn't matter. We have to work quickly to save them, I said as I began to work in the locks. He went to check my son, hardly able to get him to move. Kathy's eyes shot open. What are you doing? She asked in a graggy voice. I'm getting you out of here. We're leaving, Kathy. I'm going to save you, I responded. And then she kicked at me and started to scream. Don't touch me. Get away. Get away. She kicked at me and I frantically looked across the room to see Adrian was now standing up, looking almost dead to the world. He was grabbing the pastor by the throat and crushing the man's windpipe. You've taken too long, John. Your daughter is gone. His voice almost completely monotone. No, no, please God, no. I said as I managed to break the lock and grab her hand. Callie, come with me. I shouted as we moved toward the door. No! Callie screamed. Then the pastor tugged at his cross on his collar and showed it to Adrian. He hissed in pain and dropped him and then the man shouted, Run! I obeyed and booked it up the stairs, the house rumbling and shaking as I did. As I made it to the ground floor, Callie tugged at me and finally pulled away. I don't know you, stop! She screamed. And then I looked at her and realized that her eyes had changed color. I hadn't seen it in the darkness, but her hair had too. This wasn't my little girl. 
The house shook again, and I turned to see the stranger push herself up from the floorboard, her naked and monstrous body snarling as I looked on in horror. You dare go against our arrangement, it snarled. No, no, I brought what you asked for, I said desperately. You tried to attack us, and for that you must suffer. The stranger snarled louder. John, I heard the pastor said as he managed to make it to the first floor. It's not too late for your family. You must undo the sins that have been committed here, he begged. Silence! These strangers screamed louder and then made the girl become her puppet, her hands fidgeting as if pulling the strings and forcing the child to comply. I watched as the little girl screamed and opened her mouth in pain, and then hornets began to swarm from her mouth. I was pushed to the floor by the sheer force of them, watching as they moved toward the pastor, stinging him madly with the fury of a legion of demons. They were going to kill him before he could have a chance, and it was giving me a chance to escape. I crawled toward the door as I heard the child screaming louder, and I felt my heart drop as I managed to push my way out to the front yard. I had to abandon my children there. The house had officially claimed them as its own. As I managed to escape and heard the buzz of the hornets grow louder, I made up my mind that there was only one thing I could do now. This place needs to be destroyed. It has taken everything from me. And I'll be damned if I don't make it pay. It's been a very long week. Last Saturday, my wife Audrey and my two children were taken hostage by a demonic force in the basement. I learned very quickly that Audrey was gone, but if I played nice with the demon, that I could save my kids. I didn't play nice and it took them from me, along with a good pastor that didn't deserve to die. Now, nothing was left except for me to try and destroy the house. I knew that it wouldn't be easy. It's been clear to me this entity has great power with the ability to control people's minds and take their bodies as its host. And I knew I would need help. So, I went to the one person that I thought might even consider helping. The man that owned his house eight years ago. After the incident two years back where it was discovered that his son was saved by the family that lived at a similar house to mine, I learned that he was cleared of all charges. That isn't to say his life was better though, because I soon discovered that he was at a local psychiatric hospital under careful watch. Apparently over the past two years, he had tried to end it several times. I don't blame him. I feel like I'm in the same boat if I'm being honest. The demon within this house has used me the same way it did him. I found him in the commons room, staring out the window down at the grass. He looked like a broken and defeated man, with no sense of purpose anymore. I was about to give him a reason to live again, even if it was for pure revenge. Noah Hunt, I asked, extending my hand to shake his. He ignored the gesture. Who the heck are you? He snapped back. John, I, well, there's no way to make this easy, so I'll just say it. I think I'm dealing with the same demon you fought eight years ago. Noah's eye twitched. I could see that he was scared, but he could tell also that I wasn't lying. So then, it's starting again, he whispered. 
I had hoped when I told that woman the truth about what had happened to Jasper. I thought when I saw the reports that she killed them both that, that it meant it was over. He shook his head and tried not to let his hands shake and tremble. But that was just the demon warming up, wasn't it? No, I think she really did go insane and kill them both. It weakened the entity until my family moved in just last week. It's been feeding off my wife and kids in the basement, I said. Feeding? It's still using their bodies, Noah asked. My wife. I paused as my own voice cracked. This was more difficult than I realized saying it out loud. Audrey is gone. The demon created a new body for itself, and it's going to do the same for my children. And I think that after that, it will spread and infect other homes, I admitted. Then why come meet me? Just leave. Get away from here and forget about this place. Your family's gone. Noah insisted. I held back a tear as I clenched my fist. You think I don't know that? A few of the orderlies looked at me in surprise, and I controlled my anger so as to not cause a scene. But you know as well as I do that running away solves nothing. Too many people have suffered because of this thing. I want to kill it. I swallowed a gulp of air and offered a proposal to him. Eight years ago, you managed to wound it enough to keep it dead for at least this long. You must have done something different, I said. Noah looked at me like I was a madman. Maybe I was. And then he laughed. You want to know my big secret, do you? It's the reason I went to jail. I killed Jasper. Yeah, my own boy. He was six. He stood up and jabbed his finger in my face. Do you have any idea what it takes to watch the innocence fade from your kid's eyes as you're holding their heart in your hand? But I knew. I knew it was the only way to stop this evil. I had to stop it before others were hurt. I could see the anger there. It was the same passion that drove me now. Help me, please. You and I seem to be free of the influence this thing has. Let us use that to our advantage and get rid of it once and for all. I urged him. You're joking, right? What's your plan and nuke the place? And how are you going to get me out of here anyway? He asked with a laugh. You know the answer to that. I paused and leaned forward, whispering my plan to him. He actually smiled for the first time. The house demon has powers to manipulate people, right? So, it can certainly get you to be brought to it, if it so chooses. So, if I made it believe you were offering yourself willingly, then there wouldn't be an objection from the staff. It's crazy, but it might work. Noah agreed. So, then we just go and burn the thing down. And do you have a better method? I asked. He crossed his arms and laughed again. I have a bad feeling about this, but sure. Why the heck not? By afternoon, Noah and I were headed toward the house. It took little to convince the demon of his interest. It remembered the wound that he had caused and the entity made it clear that it wanted to exact revenge. And from the way that Noah was fidgeting... I could see that he was eager to do the same. I was sure this would be the last time I set foot in this house. One way or another, it was ending here. The door opened on its own accord as we stepped on the porch. 
Noah and I both felt a cold chill, and I knew. The demon was back at full strength again. It didn't really need us. Now, it was going to dispose of us as obstacles so that it could go elsewhere. As if to confirm that, I saw the stranger and two children. I didn't recognize sitting in the den, waiting. To the side of the girl stood a lifelike husk of Kelly, and the same of Adrian was near the boy. My poor children, taken and destroyed by this evil. It was pulling at my heartstrings, but I knew that it was too late for them. Apparently Noah recognized the stranger and the boy. Jasper, how dare you continue to use my son's body for your purposes, you monsters, he said as he clenched his fist. It then occurred to me the stranger had to be the woman that had killed Jasper and this girl only a few years back. A desperate attempt to stop the evil from spreading that was now backfiring. He was the first one to awake us. It seems only fitting he continues to be our primary vessel. The woman and Jasper and the girl all spoke in unison. That won't be happening. This is going to end and you are going to die. Noah responded. You think I don't realize you came here to kill us? You will fail. I shook my head. I actually had a different motive. One that I hadn't even told Noah about. I remembered the pastor's words about undoing old sins, and though it seemed crazy, I made a conscious decision to try something unorthodox. You want to spread and go elsewhere, then use my body, it's healthy, and it's not going to be something that people question either. You can leave this place and go where you want, but if you do that, you'll have to give these souls back to the bodies that you took them from. My family, bring them back. I know that you have the power to do that now. I said. Noah looked at me in shock. You can't be serious. This thing would just use you as a puppet. It needs me, the same way that it needed you all those years ago. I'm not sure why, but I feel our roles as fathers serve as distinct purpose in its own evolution. I saw the demon girl twitch, and I remarked. And it knows that it can't leave here with these three bodies. It fed on my family simply to regain strength. Now it needs to be able to expand. I offered myself again and swore to the demon. I'll make whatever oath you want, but my family needs to be freed of your grasp. They didn't hurt you. Honor them by letting them go, I insisted. No, I won't allow this, Noah said. He pulled out the knife that he had brought and snapped. You think you're so smart, but I've been willing to kill before to stop this thing and I'll do it again. He pushed me to the ground and slammed his weapon into my shoulder, causing me to scream out. To be honest, his response was a part of my plan, but I saw that the demon recognized the potential it had to use me and immediately lashed out toward Noah. You were the one that took our survival and freedom from us. You will regret ever stepping in our path. I saw the moment of distraction and leapt at the chance. I grabbed the knife and pulled it off my shoulder just as the demon pushed toward him in full force. And then I tackled Jasper to the ground and jabbed him repeatedly in the chest. Even as I had completed the act, I saw the color in Adrian's cheeks begin to return. The plan was working. The demon screamed at the realization that I was turning on it even as Noah took out his next weapon of choice, a simple match. He lit it and tossed it at the woman, 
causing her clothes to catch fire as I kept trying to make Jasper lose consciousness. I had to keep telling myself that this was not a kid. It was a monster, and I had to stay strong for Adrian. Suddenly, the house rumbled and shook with all its might. I saw bars begin to grow on the windows and the floor move and try to swallow us whole. The entire house was fighting back. The demon was using all of its resources to stop what would come next. But I didn't hesitate anymore. I tossed the weapon next straight at the girl's back and shouted to Noah, Do it now! He kicked the woman off and then ripped off his jacket, revealing a makeshift explosive he hadn't made. It wasn't easy to get the materials without raising any red flags, but we had been cautious. And this would be enough to do the trick if he could get the demon back to where this had all started. The basement. Surprise! He shouted as he tackled the woman to the ground and they both tumbled toward the basement. I crawled toward my children, grabbing their hands and pulling them as I raced toward the entranceway. I had only seconds to escape. The door itself was beginning to close the way a lion's maw would, and the entire property creaked and groaned as I leapt out, my children in my arms. And then everything burst into flames. I tumbled onto the porch as I heard the screams of a thousand demons that filled the night, and the top of the house spilled off, debris tumbling in every direction. I collapsed in exhaustion as I clutched Adrian and Callie, and I struggled to help them breathe. As the last remnants of the house flew up in the air, they both started to wake up and I sobbed in relief. It was finally over. The fire department was on the scene in less than 10 minutes. I provided the best statement that I could of a home accident that had taken my wife and Noah. I claimed that he had been holding them hostage in the basement and then finally decided to end things once and for all. They hadn't made it to the debris down there yet, but they accepted my version of events pretty easily, given the man's track record of violence. As I was given a warm mug of coffee, I laid my wife to rest in a nearby empty garden. I held Adrian and Callie close to me as they cried and tried to comprehend what had happened. Honestly, I'm not sure they will ever know. I don't have much to remember her by, but I will do my best to live the rest of my life trying to find a reason to go on. I have never really been a believer, but I think I felt Audrey smiling down on me as I laid her ashes to rest. I did it. I saved our kids. And they insisted on taking us to a local hospital for examination to make sure that we were fine and I accepted it. I had a feeling that I would need some intense therapy after this last week. As I sat there in recovery, I saw my kids get their own examination in a room adjacent to mine, and I thought about Noah, how he was now at peace too with his own family, and I was doomed to be a guilty survivor. Then, there was a knock at the door. John? It was one of the officers that had brought me here. I just wanted to let you know that everything has been cleared up, and we got a statement and you're clear. For a moment, I was at a loss for words. I'm sorry, what do you mean? I asked. Then in the doorway, I saw standing there a man in handcuffs that should be dead. Noah Hunt. Mr. Hunt has confirmed what you told us at the property. It seems he had also had help from a few of our officers and the real estate agent. I'm so sorry that you had to go through with this. 
We are putting this monster back where he belongs as soon as possible. Noah looked at me with those same cold, dead eyes, and immediately I knew. No, no, you can't send him to a prison. John, he tried to kill his own son. He held your family hostage for a week before killing your wife. We're nailing this guy hard. No, you don't understand. I screamed as I strained to get up. It's quite alright, John. Noah said in that same, monotone voice. The demon's eyes fired up as he added, I've accepted my fate to return to the gallows. Why, you could almost say it's like going home again. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the stories. I would like to give another big shout out to today's sponsor, Audible. Visit audible.com slash creepscast or text creepscast to 500-500 for a free 30-day trial. Again, that's audible.com slash creepscast or text creepscast to 500-500 for a free 30-day trial. I hope you all have an amazing day or night wherever you may be in the world. And as always, stay creepy.